the electric chair, the green man. Welcome again to the show. This is The Electric Chair, and I am Midnight Corey, your host. We got a lot to talk about this week, and I appreciate that uh, you're listening. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, First of all, uh, let me tell you who my guest is, because I'm really excited about this. My guest this week is filmmaker Jason Figgis, and uh, he is out of Dublin, Ireland, and he is making some fantastic movies. Uh, He just finished up one that is uh, doing some uh, festival things right now called Railway Children, and he let me screen it, and I'll tell you what, it's amazing. It really is. It's this uh, post-apocalyptic thing uh, where there was a virus that killed only adults and left all the children. And before the adults died, you know, they kind of slowly went, they went crazy and, and it just came to a brutal, violent death. And so it's just up to the children uh, to figure things out. There are no rules and it's, it's a study in that and it's really, really cool. So uh, I really enjoyed it. And you're going to really enjoy that interview as well with, uh, with Jason. So that is coming up. I also have a reading this week. Um, I'm going back to Ambrose Bierce, actually, another one of his tales because he was such a good author. And this week I'll be reading An Occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge. Um, let's see. There is going to be a drawing, of course, for Spine, the uh, the very first VHS release by Voltra Video. And uh, my friend Jason West is a wonderful human being, and uh, he's really cool. Hooked me up with some great stuff. So actually, not only will you be getting Spine, but some uh, extra goodies that Jason threw in there as well. So uh, we'll be drawing three winners for that uh, by the time I record the next episode. And usually that is, like, on Thursdays. So, um... You know, if you want to get your entry in before I record this Thursday, then that's great. But I'll be doing that uh, live, quote, live on the show uh, for next week. So, um, yeah, just email me, contact me through the website or Facebook or whatever. Um, So that's cool. That's going on. I just talked to a couple really great guys. I believe they're based out of the U.K. and they have a wonderful horror podcast called Gil and Roscoe's Bodacious Horror Podcast. I'll be playing their promo here in a bit. But um, they're, they're, they're really great. Um, definitely should check them out. I um, uh, just want to remind you that uh, I'm on Stitcher. So uh, get the Stitcher app for your phone or your tablet, and you can look me up on there. Uh, Stitcher's really great. As well as uh, the Horror Podcasting Alliance at horrorpodcasting.blogs- horrorpodcastingalliance.blogspot.com. Um, a lot of other great shows on that. And uh, spookshow.tv is uh, one of the homes of uh, the Electric Chair 2D. And I just released another episode of that this past week. It's with Rob Watts. Do a beer review. Have a lot of fun. So I hope you check that out. I also had the drawing for the John F.D. Taff Little Deaths giveaway. So, yeah, if you entered, you got to watch that show. I'm drawing names out of the hat of pain. And I picked the winners. There are two of you out there that won. So you're going to want to check that out. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. What else? What else? <laughs> feedback. Like I said, okay, feedback. My voicemail is 206-337-5096. And, uh, in fact, I got a piece of feedback this week that uh, was not through that phone number. It was actually through email. It was Johnny T who uh, sent me an MP3. So let's see what Johnny T says. Hey, Corey, it's Johnny T from the UK. Uh, sorry, it's been a while since I've uh, called him. My player went, well, broken. I won't swear. <laughs> but I've got this one fixed now, so hopefully this will work okay for you. Um, just catching up with all the shows again, man. Weekly, brilliant, great stuff, man. 
great to hear you talk about films such as Night of the Comet, which I'd forgot about. Um, looking forward to that Shadow of Death as well, man. That sounds really good, that does. I must uh, kind of try and track that down. I've looked out for release dates and stuff, but um, if you can keep us informed on that one, really looking forward to that. And it was great to hear you talk about White Zombie. I mean, I've always been a fan of you talking about zombie films because with you and Root Rot, the experts on zombie, in my opinion, and nobody can touch you, no matter what anybody says. Um, and on the subject of zombies, uh, The Walking Dead Season 3 has returned, which I thought the first one was brilliant, brilliant opener. Um, I think more zombies got killed in that first episode than I've done in the previous uh, last two series. Uh, for me, I felt this season two dipped a little bit in the middle, but then again, I've read the comics um, from the current issue to issue one kind of thing, so the, the twists and turns are good in it, and obviously they can't kill off characters like they do in the comics and stuff, but hopefully this season will pick up, and I've seen Greg Nicotero saying it's just non-stop when the governor gets in, introduced and stuff and that, so I was just wondering what your thoughts were on that. Um, not really been watching else much recently. I've been hooked over here bizarrely on the uh, American TV show, which you probably know about. Obviously, it's called Ghost Hunters, you know, Taps. Uh, Ruta Ruta, or whatever they're called, with um, Jason, I think it is, and Grant. Yeah, it's fantastic stuff, man. I like the way they do it scientifically and everything and stuff. But if you've not checked it out, you know, I'd uh, give it a watch. It's a, a good thing just to stick on for an hour and 45 minutes, something like that, you know. So it's, yeah, it's really good stuff. So anyway, you keep up the good work and uh, get some more 2D stuff out and uh, look forward to what you've got coming up. And uh, I shall call in again for next week's show. You take care, man. Bye. Great to hear from you again, Johnny T. Man, it's been a while. I was hoping everything was okay, and I see that it is. So I'm, I'm very glad to hear from you, man. <laughs> but uh, I hope all is well in your neck of the woods. Of course, uh, Shadow of Death. I hope you can, you can uh, find that at some point and, and uh, watch it. It's a really fun movie. Um, and The Walking Dead Season 3, I did, in fact, watch the first episode. Uh, believe it or not, I got time. And... Um, so, but yeah, I really, really enjoyed it as well. You know, season two was kind of slow, and a lot of people kind of moaned and groaned about that. But you know what? That's what the comic is. Comic is a lot of, you know, drawing things out and focusing on the characters and their relationships and stuff, and not as much zombie thing, you know, kind of, kind of the stuff going on. So I don't know, um, you know, but season three just started off with a bang, man, and I, I just can't wait. You know, we're seeing the prison, we're seeing Michonne, we're going to see the governor. Didn't see him on this episode, but he is coming this ep this uh, season. So, oh, so much excitement out there. But uh, yeah, yeah. So, and I think a lot of people are finally going to be happy because it, it's picking up a little bit. But uh, we'll see what happens then once, uh, once they get to the prison. It sounds to me like they're not going to draw the prison thing out as long as they did in the comic. Uh, which, you know, they, they've said once once the governor hits, things just get really, really crazy. And so, I don't know. We'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> um, but uh, let me see. And Ghost Hunters, yeah, that's that's a great show. I don't I don't blame you for being hooked on that. It's, uh, it's really, really great as well. So, Johnny T, Johnny's Cult Films, of course. Everyone needs to be checking that out. But uh, thank you, man, for uh, taking the time to send that over. That was very cool. And, again, I just love hearing from you, my friend. Um, okay, so that was uh, that was the feedback. That was great. Um, Thomas Dunn books, you know, mentioned them a lot, and uh, I got a couple more books in that I want to tell you about. Um, these look fantastic. Wait, I'm gonna read to you about these. What uh, what they sent me, synopsis wise, and kind of things. But uh, you know, something that I neglect to mention when I talk about these uh, these hardbacks that I get from Thomas Dunn, also Saint Martin's Press. I don't mention the beauty of having these books. Um, the, the cover art is often just amazing and uh, really, really cool and very cool to have up on your bookshelf. And 
I talk a lot about you know having a Kindle. I, well, I don't have a Kindle. I have the Kindle app on my on my tablet. But um, so I read the Kindle a lot, and I just like the ease, you know, and and everything of getting books and reading stuff. And it's very very easy to be carrying around a ton of books right on the tablet. But you know, there's nothing like the real thing. There's nothing like holding a book in your hands, opening it up, flipping through the pages, smelling that new book smell, an actual book made of paper and trees, you know, and uh, just, you know, again, the artwork and just everything. Are these hardbacks or I love hardback books. So beautiful, but definitely worth picking up. These are two books that are going to be coming out here in October. Uh, the first one, um, I don't have an exact date on this. They didn't send me one. But, um, you know, this is uh, Death's Apprentice by K.W. Jeter and Gareth Jefferson Jones. Uh, it says October, so it could be any time now. If it's not out already, then uh, it's uh, going to be out in the next couple weeks. And this sounds really, really interesting. Um, this is all about Grim City. It says, built on top of the gates of hell, Grim City is the devil's capital on earth. A place where every coffee shop, nightclub, and shopping mall is the potential hunting ground for a ghost, a demon, or any of the other supernatural entities that inhabit the grim city world. Death's 17-year-old apprentice, Nathaniel, comes into his own as he learns the painful lessons of extracting souls from the bewildered beings whose time is up and leads an uprising against the devil with the help of a half-dead wraith and a giant hitman. What results is a bloody, brutal revolt that calls upon the loyalties of both the living and the dead. Now, in Death's Apprentice, a Grim City novel, K.W. Jeter and Gareth Jefferson Jones craftily transfigure the works of Brothers Grimm into a gripping, often graphic debut, which is the first of the Grim City series. This gritty resurrection revels in the original darkness and violence that encompassed the many tragedies and triumphs in Brothers Grimm folklore, a chilling addition to the evolving grim genre. Based not only upon the Brothers Grimm original unsanitized and terrifying tales like Little Red Riding Hood and Snow White, but also upon the, quote, unknown German language tales and essays from Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm, Death's Apprentice is the first novel to be adapted from the entire Grimm canon. Such an authentic, comprehensive, and in-depth adaptation of the works of the Brothers Grimm has never been published before. That sounds to me pretty darn amazing. Actually, doesn't that sounds great? That you know, the brothers Grimm, man, they were pretty grim. You know, I mean, they're not the uh, the cleaned up, happy little fairy tales that a lot of kids are hearing nowadays. They're they're pretty pretty wild. And this is really cool. I like the take that they're doing on this. And this is the first of a series. So, Death's Apprentice, a Grim City novel. And uh, again, I, I love the cover of this, and uh, it looks looks really fantastic. So. Can't wait to read it. Of course, I haven't had time to read it yet. I just got this in the mail, in fact, in the last week. So, um, And the second book that I got is by a fellow named Matthew Costello, and the name of his book is Home. Besieged and attacked, a mother and her children must escape a post-apocalyptic nightmare world of cannibals and betrayal. Jack and Christy Murphy thought they'd found the perfect respite from a world gone horribly askew. When they retreated to Paterville Camp to see the savage canheads 
Once humans, who feed off their own kind after shocking and horrific genetic testing led by the government, went horribly astray. But they couldn't have been more wrong about idyllic Paterville Camp. Now following the shocking sacrifice made by Jack to save his family, home begins minutes after the harrowing events at the camp. Jack's family, Christy, along with her two children, Kate and Simon, realize that their lives have been changed forever. In this intimate and human survivalist story, they now must face even greater danger and new horrors to simply stay alive as they search for a road home in this intense and original post-apocalyptic thriller. Home will catapult readers into this pulse-pounding, vividly imagined dystopian future where people are hungry for the good old days, or each other. Fighting their hardest to stay together and stay alive, a mother and her children must escape a nightmare world of cannibals and betrayal in this tense page-turner. Whether you're prepping for the zombie apocalypse or looking for an evening of nail-biting fun, Home is a must-read thriller this Halloween. Oh yes, it is out the day before Halloween, October 30th. So, if you're at the bookstore, you're on Amazon, something of that nature, look up Home by Matthew Costello. That, that sounds really cool. Cannibals, post-apocalyptic, you, you got me there. And this sounds really great. Let me let me tell you, the book looks fantastic as well. Again, great cover art, great design here. Um, just fantastic. It really makes me want to read this thing. And it looks beautiful on the old bookshelf. So thank you to Thomas Dunn Books. Thank you uh, to their generosity in, in sending these over. These will be read. I hope to uh, review them and talk about them further in depth on the podcast. So that's fantastic. Uh, you should definitely check those out. All right, next thing I'm going to talk about, and the last thing, I promise, the last thing I talk about before my interview with Jason Figgis um, is that I went to the Erie Horror Film Festival this past weekend. As you all know, I've been talking about it a lot, and I was very excited. Now, um, I had a great time. Of course, it went on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Thursday, of course, couldn't go. Um, uh, you know, I, I work. I have a family. Doing stuff like that during the week is just really tricky. So, um, no, couldn't make it Thursday. However, I did go Friday. And before I did, before I talk about any of it, I just got to thank Greg Ropp, the president, for, uh, you know, putting on another great show. And his whole staff, everybody uh, involved in there, was really fantastic. Of course, at the historic Warner Theater in downtown Erie, which I love. It's an absolute, just awesome place to hang out at. So uh, I love going there every year for this horror film fest. Um... Now, uh, so I go Friday evening, actually. The block of movies, I think, started at like 6.30. So I went a little early just to kind of walk around a little bit and hang out. And then, then uh, went in to see the films. The first movie that I saw... Well, no, before I get into the films, let me, let me say a couple things. First of all, it was a big Dawn of the Dead reunion, okay? Um, but uh, let me tell you, the one guy who I did not talk to all weekend on purpose, and I could have, I could have stopped by his table, but I never did, was Nick Tallow. Nick Tallow. Um... <sighs> That guy, I, I don't know about him. I don't know about him. He's, uh, <laughs> I met him a few years ago down at Horror Realm. And he seemed really cool. And I talked with him a while. And he talked with me. And he was at a table sitting right beside Joe Shelby. He was a, another guy. Um, of course, Nick uh, was, I think, one of the, the bikers and, and stuff. And so was Joe, Joe Shelby. And they, I think they both did other behind-the-scenes things in, in Dawn as well. So it's not that, like they were big stars or anything, you know, they just did these, they had small parts. So, of course, when I came home from Horror Realm, I did a big write-up on my website about, you know, who all I met and the pictures I took and blah, 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 blah. 
So I'm writing, and I made the mistake. I accidentally switched Joe Tallow or uh, uh, Joe Shelby and Nick Tallow's names when I was given the descriptions of everybody. And so, you know, I, I accidentally said that Nick Tallow did the stuff that Joe Shelby did and that Joe Shelby did the stuff that Nick Tallow did. It was a simple error. I mean, I met a lot of people for the first time that weekend, and it was, you know, just... So I get a comment. <laughs> Excuse me. I get a comment. Um, and it's from Nick Tallow. Uh, and I'm not sure if I ever made this public. I think it's still kind of buried in my, in my comment queue. Um, but it basically... He, he called me a dickhead. He's like, hey, dickhead. <laughs> like, okay. And he's like, you switch the names of me and, and Joe Shelby, blah, 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 blah. We work hard for what we do. And just all like laying into me and just going off on how he deserves. Like, it's almost like he's saying he deserves better treatment than that. You know, he's Nick Tallow and he's Joe Shelby, you know. <laughs> and he was, he was upset. I think he probably commented when he was drunk. You know, you, you overreact sometimes. And uh, so, okay, I'll give him that. But still, you don't just get... And he, he wrote in all caps as well. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, Nick Tallow, man. What a shady guy. What a shady guy. I lost all respect for him at, at that point. It's not like I hate the guy. Just I lost all respect for him. I don't care what you did. Um, so I avoided talking with him the whole time. But I talked with a lot of other people. And Joe Shelby, I did say hi to him. Um, but anyhow, I'll, I'll get into who I met uh, here in a little bit because I actually concentrated more on, on talking with people and meeting people on Saturday. Um, so Friday, okay, go into the theater. First thing I see is a short called Eagle Walk. And uh, this was really interesting. Um, let me get you the synopsis here. It was a half an hour long. It's an American film made by Ry Rob Heimabaugh. And it stars Christopher Emerson, Matt Lasky, and Cassidy Gard. Uh, the synopsis is that summer fun is on the run when a group of hapless counselors return to open the long-abandoned camp Eagle Walk, only to unleash a fury of vengeful Sasquatch, whose sacred totem pole was desecrated a decade before. What follows is a 24-hour nightmare of terror as one by one, the counselors are slaughtered by the rampaging beast, forcing the sole survivor to make a desperate last stand or die running. And this was a good film. I enjoyed it. It was really well done, uh, very well produced. Um, of course, you know, the whole Sasquatch thing. Um, and, um, you know, it did leave me wondering why did these kids go back to the camp after 10 years? I'm not sure. Something obviously really bad happened there, and they just decided to go back and hang out and party. You don't go back to the camp where something really bad happened 10 years ago and start partying. He's in a horror movie that is a recipe for disaster, recipe for a lot of killing to happen. And so that's what happened here. So it was a little formulaic in that regard, a little like, eh, what? <laughs> okay. Um, but, you know, it was basically Friday the 13th with a, a, a Sasquatch instead of Jason or Jason's mom, you know. And uh, so... Uh, whatever, but the, the Sasquatch did look pretty good. It was uh, actually, I don't think, any CGI. It might have had a blood spurt here or there, but, uh, you know, nothing uh, nothing too crazy. I like the scary atmosphere going on here. So, um, yeah, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Um, predictable, though, you know, so. But well done, Eagle Walk. Um, the next one I saw was a feature film, and this, this was exciting when I read about this beforehand. Uh, it was called Shiver. It's an American film by, by uh, Julian Richards, and it stars Danielle Harris, as well as John Jarrett and Casper Van Dien. Uh, of course, Danielle Harris, well, you know, everybody out there should know who Danielle Harris is. Uh, John Jarrett, 
I can't place him. I haven't looked him up yet, though, but uh, he, he was actually a fantastic actor. And Casper Van Dien is, uh, yeah, I know him best. Uh, I love him, actually, for Starship Troopers. I love that movie and his role in it. He's the all-American tough guy, you know, and I, I, I really dug that movie. And I like that guy. And uh, so he, uh, he starred in this as well and uh, did a decent job. Uh, the synopsis for this is Wendy Alden, a young secretary in Portland lacking in self-confidence, becomes victim of a savage killer who has claimed the lives of a number of other women. Somehow, Wendy finds the resources of courage to fight back and escape. Stars Danielle Harris from Rob Zombie's Halloween and Casper Van Dien from Starship Troopers, like I said. Um, so this was decent. Um, you know, it uh, was a lot of fun. It was more of a thriller kind of thing than horror. I'm not sure it was scary. It had some scary moments in it, I guess. But, uh, you know, eh, horror, eh, I'm not sure. I don't know. Uh, the thing for me is that, uh, and I don't think this spoils anything, is that you know exactly who the killer is from the very first scene of the film, and you see him throughout. So there's really no question there. Um, nothing. Uh, so there's not a lot to be discovered there are there's a couple reveals throughout the movie but it was just it wasn't that big a deal um it was basically just him chasing daniel harris around and uh of course uh, casper playing the the cop the detect the detective guy um trying to sort everything out so but i mean despite that it was it was enjoyable it was really good i i i, I dug it um, it did have, I do have to say, one of the most awkward car chase scenes that I've ever seen. Uh, that was done uh, not quite so well. <laughs> and it was, it was kind of funny, actually. I think there were some chuckles from the audience at that point. But um, they did use a good bit of CGI that was, I think, pulled off well. Uh, a lot of the CGI blood, the gunshots, and things like that. So I did notice that, but it wasn't, it wasn't terrible CGI, so that was okay. Um, but I'll tell you what, what did steal the show were the performances. Of course, Danielle Harris did a great job, as always. And um, that uh, John Jarrett guy um, as the killer was fantastic. I loved his uh, personality. I loved the, the life that he breathed into that character. I love how he portrayed that. He, he did a great job, so I got to applaud him. And, of course, Casper Van Dien is, uh, you know, he's Casper Van Dien. So, you know, great. I, you know, I, I enjoyed it. Um, but it was Danielle and John who really stole the show here um, as the, uh, the two leads. So uh, great job there. And uh, Shiver, that's a, that's a fun movie. Um, th this next block of films, yeah, I'm just trying to remember how things went. This next block of films, actually all these were made by the same group of filmmakers, the same director and, and group of guys. Um, we saw a short that uh, they just did. It's their newest release called Cliff Lake. Now, um, Cliff Lake was really interesting. Uh, it's uh, American. It's 14 minutes long. And the synopsis is, In the remote American wilderness, three survivors find asylum from apocalypse. After one of them is found dead, the rules the survivors have set quickly begin to unfurl, and the remaining two are left with the ultimate choice. This was an interesting film, uh, extremely stylistic. It's wild. It's crazy. There's a lot going on. Um, people may not like this because of the shaky cam. Tons of shaky cam in it. Um, but it was cool nonetheless. Um, I guess it's part of a bigger project going on. I don't know. Uh, the filmmakers did come up before they showed these movies. and uh, so. But I enjoyed it. I thought it was cool. There's not hardly, I don't think there's any dialogue hardly at all. 
um, almost no speaking. So it's all told visually, which again, it's jarring being the thing is extremely shaky. It's almost like a found footage film, but it's not found footage. It's not. Um, so yeah, but, uh, it, it was definitely cool. Next film that they showed then was Paper Dolls. This is their feature. And uh, this one I, I was pretty excited about. It sounded great. Um, it actually won, I think it swept pretty much all the awards at the film festival here. It's a 2007 film, so they're re-showing this. Um, Greg Rupp, the president, went up beforehand and just said, this is great. I mean, he made this movie sound like it was the greatest indie horror film ever made. I mean, <laughs> whatever he would just praise this thing up and down and he said that uh there's a scene in there that is one of the scariest scenes that he's ever seen in a horror film it would rank right up there with any other big budget film uh, as far as having scary scenes and his like you'll know exactly what it is when you see it and so i was braced man for something great and let me tell you it, it didn't quite meet my expectations for that and i kind of wish he wouldn't have got up there and, and said all this about the movie because um you know i, I think he overhyped it uh, I probably would have enjoyed it more if he wouldn't have done that. Um, but uh, this is 2007 called Paper Dolls, again, directed by David Blair and Adam Pittman, starring Adam Pittman, Nathaniel Peterson, uh, Ryan Gerald, Gil Gale, and Kent Harper. Uh, the synopsis is that two high school friends, Travis and Nate, are on a road trip to Canada when they're attacked by mysterious and vicious creatures. Nate is stolen into the woods, and Travis will stop at nothing to get him back. Travis recruits Nate's older brother, Chris, to bring an arsenal and wage war against these monsters in an effort to retrieve Nate. So um, there was a Q&A with these guys after the film. And uh, they also, um, I guess, uh, we're going to show a trailer and things like that. Now, I ended up not staying afterwards um, because, really, like I said, I was, I was kind of disappointed in the film. I didn't like the end. I didn't like how it ended. I think it just left too much open. I mean, you're questioning too much. Really, I had no idea what was going on at the end. I think I know, but I don't know. And it's not one of those cool things where it's just like, oh, it's open for interpretation and discuss. Like, I, I, I just don't know. I, I think it was way too um, just questioning things. But it was cool in a lot of regards. Had a lot of disturbing scenes, a lot of crazy scenes. But I'll tell you what, um, I'm not entirely sure which scene Greg was referring to. I think I know. Um, so, again, I, I think he kind of overhyped it. Uh, okay. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Um, would I watch it again? Uh, maybe. Maybe. Again, you know, I was questioning a lot of things, so maybe I just had to rewatch some things. I, I just, uh, I, 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 man, I don't know. I don't know. But it was pretty good. It was pretty good. So I'm glad that I did see it. So like I said, after that, I did not stick around for uh, the Q&A. I just didn't. I was like, oh. man, I just don't know. I had to, I just let, I had to let things settle in my brain for a while. And they still haven't settled. I don't know. I, I just don't know. I don't know. But uh, so that was my Friday. I went home after that. It was like 11, 11.30. So, yeah. Uh, next day, I went in early and uh, actually uh, I, I started by talking with people because they had some they had some films going on right when they opened and in the early afternoon that I wasn't necessarily interested in. Um, there was a, some sort of documentary going on about um, I forget what they call it, cryptozoology and what the big hype is about that. And I'm, I'm not really, really into that. Uh, of course, there were you know a lot of Sasquatch kind of things going on. The paper dolls that I just talked about was about Sasquatch, and uh, that the short Eagle Walk was about Sasquatch. So you know that that had quite a presence here this year, 
And so there was this documentary about it. But, you know, I, I wasn't burning to see it. So I'm like, I'll take this time to actually enjoy the people there, you know, talk with uh, some people, look around, just hang out, take my time. So Saturday I went there and I uh, started off. I said hello to Sharon Sakati, you know, the nurse zombie from Dawn of the Dead. And she was really cool. I uh, said hello to a few other people. I talked with David Early, who plays Mr. Berman in Dawn of the Dead. He's the one. He has that great back and forth with... Um, David Crawford's character and uh, you know they have some iconic lines spoken in that dialogue and it's it's a great back and forth that they have and I actually said to David I'm like man wouldn't it be cool because he's still you know he's still close with um, with David Crawford and I said man you know what you guys ought to do you guys really ought to perform this live on the stage take that scene from Don and perform it live and David looks at me and he's like yeah we already did that it's like we did it one time at this place in New Jersey. They were asked to do it, so they got together and rehearsed it and went and did it. I'm like, you're kidding me. I missed that. That would have been amazing. He's like, oh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. And I'm like, man, I'll be keeping my eyes open now for if you guys do it again around here because I would love to see that. It would just be really cool to see a stage adaptation of their back and forth. And uh, so, yeah, but David was really, really great. Um so, yeah, what else did I do on Saturday? I talked with uh, the, the people making a movie called Zombie Girl Diary um, because, of course, it's a zombie movie. They had a big, long table there with a lot of the cast and crew. Um, uh, so, yeah, it's going to be a zombie movie. It's in production. But I was really interested, as I'm checking out information, that Ruckus Productions is behind it. They are involved in the project. And uh, so Ruckus, of course, I interviewed Charlie and, and some of the other guys in the company um, back in the days of the Midnight Podcast, like years ago. And they'd sent me a DVD, and they're really, really cool guys. And, and uh, so Ruckus is behind this as well. Um, so I talked with the director quite extensively about it. So uh, Zombie Girl Diary should definitely check it out. I'll uh, give you links up in the, the show notes about where you can find out about that. It is in production, and I watched a couple of the trailers that they cut together there, and it looks really interesting. So, uh, yeah, that's uh, Zombie Girl Diary. Next, I uh, strolled down, talked with Leonard Lies. Um, of course, Leonard, I've met him before at Horror Realm, and he is Machete Zombie from Dawn of the Dead, you know, the zombie that gets the machete thrust into his skull by Tom Savini. And I talked with Leonard for a long time, and he's a really, really cool guy. Uh, I bought this road sign from him. It's a genuine, like, life-size road sign. It's metal, it's green and everything, and it says Zombie Lane, and he signed it. So it's, you know, kind of one of those unique things, but uh, so I have Zombie Lane. And, uh, and then on the, at the table right beside Leonard was Len Barnhart. Now, of course, Len, man, uh, I'm going to talk about this much more extensively at a later date um, because it's really interesting and actually it's really significant as far as uh, zombie literature goes. But Len Barnhart wrote a, uh, a novel called Reign of the Dead. And uh, it's one of the first zombie books that I ever saw out there um, because, of course, I was a big fan of zombie movies. And so I started going out looking for zombie books. And this, you know, Reign of the Dead was the only one that uh, would ever come up. So he was one of the first zombie novel authors out there. And uh, he was really, really great. Uh, I talked with him for a long time. We talked about Brian Keene. We talked about Max Brooks. Um, you know, just uh, a whole bunch of things. So I ended up buying Reign of the Dead. It's the newest edition. Of course, he's uh, working with uh, Severed Press right now. And Severed Press is an incredible publisher. And uh, Len fits in perfectly there. But, uh, yeah, so I worked with um, – or I, I talked with Len for a long time. And uh, so I bought Reign of the Dead. I bought some of his comics. 
And uh, he's a great guy. I'm really, really happy that I got to uh, to speak with Len. Um, what else? I went down after that, and I just had had a bite to eat. And then um, I went in for the, the first block of films uh, that I was going to see of the day. And uh, there was a short they were supposed to play. It was a German thing called Lichtjahre, which uh, they never showed. So I'm not sure what happened to that. But instead, uh, they showed a feature right off the bat called Found in Time. And uh, right beforehand, the uh, cinematographer and director spoke. And they're like, hey, we made this movie. We're going to have a Q&A right after it. So, uh, yeah, there we go. Um, and um, so this movie was really, really interesting. It was a trip. Found in Time. Uh, it's an American film. It's uh, directed by Arthur Vinci, uh, starring Derek Morgan, Kelly Sullivan, McLeod Andrews, and Mina Vesper-Gokul. And um, Found in Time is set in an alternate present day. Psychics with real powers sell their wares on the street, marginalized by society and monitored by the dreaded psychological police corps. They lead dark, lonely lives. Our hero, Chris, is a collector. He compulsively picks up things that most of us throw away, but every object he picks today will have meaning for someone in the future. His gift comes with a downside. He experiences his life out of order, slipping between the past, present, and future. When he commits murder in the future, he realizes he has to alter his present in order to prevent it. But how can he do this when he's not even sure of what time it is? And uh, wow, this movie was, uh, I really, really enjoyed it. It was crazy. It was all nonlinear, all out of order. You're questioning time. You're questioning relationships. Who is who? Who's doing what? I thought they did a great job. Um, it's not so crazy and, and out there that you don't know what's going on. Yeah, you're questioning a lot, but uh, you know, in the end, it all ties together. You know exactly what happened and, and why a lot of times. So this, it, it was fantastic. It was almost more of a sci-fi-ish kind of thing. Um, again, you know, there were some there were the horror elements to it, of course, but it wasn't like full full blown, you know, crazy horror. Um, but uh, the Q and A afterwards was really enjoyable. Actually, I asked a question because much of the movie was shot in downtown New York. They found a street corner in the Bronx, and they shot on the street corner, of course, with all the necessary permits. And uh, I just asked them, I mean, what was that like? I mean, obviously, they have a lot of extraneous people. In the background, you know, just going about their everyday business, um, they have, uh, you know, traffic to deal with and stuff. So I asked about the challenges of, of shooting, you know, in a, in a very high traffic area, you know, New York City. Yeah, it's a big deal. And uh, so they talked all about that. And actually, a lot of people had some good questions. So um, it was really enjoyable. I'm glad I, uh, I uh, got to watch that. So that was great. So um, after that, what did I do? Um, yeah, not a whole lot. I went in, uh, you know, took a break, came in for the next block of movies. Um, and this, I, I was excited about this, okay? Um, first of all, they showed a short called uh, The Other Side, and it was fantastic. It was probably my favorite thing of the whole weekend. Um, it was about zombies, and you question what's going on, and it, it, everything's revealed at the end, and I love the way that they did it. I love the, the storyline. I loved it. I loved it. Um, so let me, let me give you there The Other Side. Um, let me see if they have... Oh, man, they don't even have it on their uh, website here. Well, that's kind of a bummer. I was going to read you about it, but uh, the other side... Yeah, that's not even, uh, you know, part of the part of the thing here. That's disappointing. Well, okay. Yeah, it's a zombie thing. It's It was really great, and I hope I can find out more about it, because I have no idea. It's not on their website here. Um, but the feature right after that was... Uh, I was... Uh, I got to admit, I was excited. 
Um, it's called The Green Man, directed by Joe Shelby. How about that? Um, it's his directorial debut. Um, of course, Joe Shelby, like I said, involved in Dawn of the Dead. Um, Nick Tallow was involved in this. He was the, the, uh, the DP. I guess he was the cinematographer, which actually explains a lot. <laughs> I'll tell you why here in a moment. Um, so, uh, yeah, they just made this film. Uh, of course, uh, it, well, they, they just actually finished it and are, are releasing it, I guess, uh, because it, it stars uh, a bunch of people from Dawn of the Dead, uh, one of them being Clayton Hill. Of course, Clayton Hill passed away. It was Sharon Sakati's, uh husband, and uh, he was a fantastic guy. I never got to meet him, but everybody has nothing but good things to say about him, and it was cool to see him in this film, although it was kind of... Uh, a bummer as, <laughs> as well. Um, but uh, yeah, Sharon Sakati was also in it. Um, let's see, who else? A bunch of uh, Bill Lang, Tommy LaFette, and uh, Kyra Schoen from Night of the Living Dead. And actually, Kyra Schoen did the best in this whole movie. Um, it's not saying a lot, but she was the judge and uh, did great. So The Green Man, it's all about this urban legend in Pittsburgh that this guy was working up on this electrical pole and he got shocked by lightning. And did he live? Did he die? Is he a ghost? I don't know. Rumored that he's killing people underground, something like that. And he, he, Joe Shelby decided to make a whole movie around this. And it's obvious that there was no money for anything, um, that they just probably shot it when they could. Um, this was a B movie if I ever saw one. This was a Z movie, actually. <laughs> and it's hard to even know where to start with it um to be honest with you i almost walked out uh in the first few minutes because uh right from the first shot you know exactly what you're in for <laughs> but i stayed first out of respect um just because you know i, I don't i don't want to walk out on somebody's film um and uh, actually out of curiosity i just wanted to see how bad it would get um, and I just gotta be honest, I mean, on, on one level it was enjoyable, and I got it, and, and everything, but on another level I was just plain embarrassed for them, and, uh, I was disappointed that this was actually at the film festival. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, just on the technical side, the camera work was atrocious, um, some, it looked like they used, like, a hundred different cameras on this thing, some scenes looked like it was shot on somebody's phone, and uh, it was just crappy, crappy camera work. And, uh, hey, Nick Tallow's expertise right there. <laughs> and it didn't help that the editing was extremely awkward. The pacing was terrible. Um, they just, whoever edited this, I don't know, just uh, didn't know how to edit. <laughs> and the audio was just all different. Every scene, the audio was different, of course. Um, you know, just all over the place. Everything was all over the place. So it, it was really bad. Um, Basically, I think, you know, I, I see guys, you know, like Joe Shelby and Nick Tallow and, of course, you know, Sharon Sakati, who I love. I love Sharon Sakati, Great, great woman. But it's almost like, you know, these aging uh, icons uh, from Dawn and Night and everything who are just uh, basically trying to relive uh, their young party days and doing this because basically that's what it is. We're falling around this group of 20-somethings of or whatever who uh, just go from bar to bar and they get wasted and they just do all kinds of crazy stuff and, and eventually end up you know, being attacked by the green man. And uh, there's no development whatsoever. There's really not much of a plot at all. Um, nothing. Uh, just a bunch of partying and uh, a, a really long, drawn-out stripper scene, you know, so it's got kind of that sleazy thing, and really there's no reason for it to be in there. Um, and just long, I mean, terrible, terrible green screening. I mean, 
uh, I don't have really much to say that is positive about this, other than A, it was cool to see Clayton Hill, and B, Kyra Schoen actually did a good job as the judge. But that was it. That was it. They had a Q&A after the film. I didn't bother. I didn't care. So I was out of there. I, I was actually hungry at that point. I wanted some dinner. So after that atrocity, I'm like, I'm like I need to find a place where I can get something good to eat, where I can sit down and have a beer. So uh, I went across the street to the, um, uh, what was it? The uh, uh, Under the Clock, which I'd never been there before, but it looked good. It said bar and grill. And so I'm like, oh, I'll go in. I'll have a beer. I'll have a sandwich. Man, this is going to be good. So I'm sitting in there. And I had the best Angus burger that I, I think I've ever had in my life. It was actually, it was amazing. The place wasn't busy at all. It was really cool. And so there's this guy sitting a few a few seats down from the bar. I just sat at the bar, you know, to eat. And um, he's talking on his phone, and he's getting something to eat, and he has a couple drinks and everything. And I'm like, ah, do I know this guy? I'm thinking I knew him from somewhere. I couldn't quite place him. So, you know, Whatever. And uh, so I'm sitting there, and I, I finished my meal, and I'm just, you know, finishing up. You know, I had, you know, two or three uh, Misery Bay IPAs, you know, that they had on draft there, which was really cool. So I'm sitting there, and um, he turns to me, and he's, uh, he's like, are you Corey Graham? And I'm like, oh, yeah. And he's like, he introduces himself. Here, he's a DJ in the area that I know and does a lot of DJing for events and stuff. And so, oh, I thought I knew you, but he was wearing glasses this time, and I don't think I ever saw him wear glasses. And so... So uh, we began talking, and he's like, um, he's like, so what are you up to? And I told him about the horror film festival and everything, and he's like, oh, that sounds fun. And he's like, he's like, well, I'm, I'm DJing a wedding, actually, a reception uh, right down the street is actually just a block away at the Masonic Temple. And he's like, you know what? He's like, you ought to come with me and just hang out. And I'm going to be DJing. And for some reason, it sounded like a really good idea to me. Um, so uh, I went down... <laughs> Because, again, there weren't any movies that I was really excited to see uh, at the film festival. So, uh, yeah, I went down to the um, uh, the Masonic Temple, hung out, and, uh, you know, just kind of sat behind the DJ booth. I talked with him for a long time, and he's a good guy, and I, I, I had a lot of fun, and I had a couple more beers, and uh, just hung out. It was, it was kind of weird. I was underdressed. Of course, I'm dressed for the horror convention. I'm like, um, am I dressed okay? He's like, yeah, no problem. So, okay. So there I am, you know, I'm in, you know, actually, I think I was wearing my Michael Graves shirt, you know, the they live kind of looking thing. And I had a sweatshirt kind of on a hoodie thing over on top of that and my jeans and, and stuff. And uh, everybody else there is in tuxes and, and gowns, you know, and things. I'm like, I feel weird. But he assured me, no problem. So whatever. But it turned out he had actually had quite a bit to drink himself, I think. And uh, I'm not sure his judgment was that good. <laughs> oh. So um, yeah, after that, went back to the festival. Went back to the festival. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm like, yeah, the next block of movies is starting up and everything. So you know, I, I got out of there. I, I was out a couple hours. And uh, so I ended up going in and I talked with a few more people. One of the guys I ended up talking to was Sonny Lombardozzi, who, uh, if you know Sonny, he's a guitarist, he's a shredder, and he has a double-necked eight-string guitar with um, the body painted up like Jigsaw from the Saw movies. And uh, this is a big thing. He goes to horror conventions and displays this guitar, and he does uh, you know instructional things and whatever, and he promotes stuff that way. But this is a cool-looking guitar, and I had actually met him at Cinema Wasteland a few years ago. He had it set up there. So I began talking with him. And uh, he, he's based out of Erie, as a matter of fact, and he's a great guitarist. Um, I'll put up some, some links maybe on uh, the show notes here about the kind of things that he does. 
but uh, he is an amazing, amazing guitarist. He told me he was putting together a band. He was looking for a bass player, and I told him I played bass, and I have a fretless, and, and actually a lot of other basses, but he was particularly interested in the fretless. And he's like, really? He's like, uh, so we talked about different influences and who he listened to, and so he's like, hey, do me a favor. He's like, if you're coming back tomorrow, he's like, bring your fretless. He's like, I'll be here at my table. Sundays are usually pretty slow. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll bang around on the fretless for a while. <laughs> I'm like, okay, yeah. So I go in on Sunday, um, and I didn't see any more movies on Saturday. I didn't really talk to many more people. Sunday, go back in Sunday afternoon, take my, uh, my, my fretless in there, and I sat at Sonny's table uh, for a good while, and I met his, his manager and everything, and, and um, he, he's like, oh, so play something, slap around a little bit. So I slapped around on the fretless, and he said it sounded really cool, and um, we're hopefully looking into putting a band together. So how about that? Man, he's been looking for a bass player, and he's like, I don't know, maybe this is meant to be. I was just thinking about how I wish we could do this project that I want to do and have a bass player. He's like, so you never know. So we're going to get together and jam. I'm really excited. So uh, yeah, yeah. What a weird weekend. What a weird weekend. I ended up, I didn't see any more movies. I just went home um, after that on Sunday because I had, had some other things going on. I didn't have a lot of time to spend down there that day. But um, that was the Erie Horror Film Festival this year uh saw some some really great stuff saw some not so great stuff but again i had a great time just being at the warner just meeting the people talking with everyone it, I, you know it was uh, really really fun so uh thank you again to uh the staff and crew and everybody that works there greg Ropp, again the president and and everything they just bring a fantastic show to erie each and every year and i appreciate it um beyond words so it was a lot of fun Wow, wow, that, that went on a lot longer than I intended. But what can you do? So, all right, I promised you I'm going to play my interview with Jason Figgis. So here we go, and I'll talk with you again afterward. Hey, kids, do you like horror movies? Do you like podcasts? Do you like people called Gal and Roscoe? If you do, you're going to love Gal, Gal and, and Roscoe's Bodacious Horror Podcast. Every week, you'll join your hosts, Gal and Roscoe, who will discuss a range of topics, including... Juice drinks. Alcoholic drinks. Lollipops. Bobby socks. Robocops. Uncomfortable chairs. Comfortable <laughs> chairs. It sounds absolutely nothing like our podcast. Well, it, it should be a representation of our podcast, so we should start off with a pure cheesy intro and then just uh -huh. be like, actually, no, that, that sounded way too upbeat for us. Yeah. <laughs> There's some dead classy music in the background and people would think we're really high class gentlemen. We are! I are gentlemen. That's just not what our podcast is like. Right. So that's Gil and Roscoe's Bodacious Horror Podcast. Look for us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. With me right now is filmmaker Jason Figgis. Now, Jason is the head of a company called October 11 Pictures, uh, and it's based in Dublin, Ireland. So, Jason, man, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you very much, and thanks for having me on as a guest. Much appreciated. Now, oh, my pleasure. Now, this is a little extra special for you here today because, of course, October 11 pictures. We're recording this interview on October 11th, which happens to be your birthday. So, first, first and foremost, happy birthday, sir. Thank uh, you very much. It is unusual. It's kind of synchronous. But, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's my birthday today, having a nice chilled-out day, so I couldn't think of anything better than to uh, chat to you guys would be great, so looking forward to it. 
Well, I certainly appreciate that and uh, hope that you can, uh, you know, pour yourself a drink here at uh, some point today and uh, celebrate a good day. Now, um, October 11 pictures. Now, is that because of your birthday or, or how did that name come about? You know, it was funny though. when my brother and I were setting up the company, we kept trying to think of something that would work. We all, we wanted to put pictures in it because we're a big fan of kind of, you know, old school Hollywood system where they always referred to the movie business as the picture business. So uh, we, we wanted to include that as a reference to the fact that we are big fans of old school filmmaking and also that kind of golden age of of Hollywood right up to the 70s that we're huge fans of. So we thought, let's have pictures in there. And then it happened to be really close to my birthday when we were thinking of putting the company together. And we both kind of went at the same time, October 11. I mean, it, it rolls with it, October 11 pictures. It has that kind of almost Shakespearean animatopoeic kind of, uh, oh, sorry, not animatopoeic, but iambic pentameter. It has a rhythm. So we just we just decided there and then we'd use that and we'd go with it and it's stuck ever since. I love it. I love it. And uh, I love that you mentioned kind of your love, your admiration of kind of the old Holly way or Hollywood way of, of doing things. And yeah. and uh, I just know reading about you and, and seeing some of your work um, that that's really what you're trying to get back to is kind of the old, more atmospheric, a little more stylistic, a little more meaty kind of uh, kind of pictures rather than just your your quick thrills that you see in in a lot of films nowadays oh totally i mean to me uh what's mo most important is character and a lot of that i learned through through my my wife's a screenwriter as well and she did a movie called blood which um did very well in the festival circuit and got some great reviews and to her, everything was about character. And we started talking about that. So when I was developing Railway Children, for example, which is a film that we've just completed, um, I, I really thought, well, if I'm going to do a movie about the post-apocalypse, what will be most important, especially when you don't have a budget, is trying to develop believable characters, uh, which is what we tried to come up with in that, knowing that we, were gonna, we weren't going to have a huge budget for you know, crazy special effects and, and huge big master shots of the, you know, the cities in disarray. So we thought if we can get back to the core idea of character and what the character is uh, going through in this kind of extraordinary setting of a post-apocalyptic landscape, then if we focused on that, then we could try and get, you know, to a believable place uh, when we were telling the story. Absolutely. That is key. That is key. Character. Yeah. And uh, you, you pulled that off now, Railway Children. Um, you know, you said you just completed it and it's not out there really available for people to watch yet because you're, you're kind of looking yeah. for distribution, looking for a way to get it out there. Um, yes. And uh, thank you for, uh, for letting me screen that because I'll tell you what, man, it was unbelievable. I, I, I really loved it. And uh, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of apocalyptic horror. Um, I, I especially love zombie movies, but any more that the whole zombie movie thing is so played out. I think it's it's been so done and overdone, and everyone's doing it now. There's there's very little fresh ideas out there in, in terms of zombie films, but uh, apocalyptic things I also love. It's the same kind of themes, and you managed to breathe some fresh life into the apocalyptic film, and I thank you for that. Oh, thank thank you very much. Do you know what's funny about the film? Um, is it too early in the in the conversation to talk about the process of, of making that? Or do you want to no, that? no. Actually, I'm very interested in uh, in knowing kind of what went on behind the scenes here. 
Well, what happened was I was uh, I was teaching some classes in a um, in a performance art school in Dublin called Habemus, the Habemus Performing Arts School, and they really wanted to concentrate more on the film side of things, more so than theatrical. Like a lot of those performance art schools, it's all about the singing and dancing kids on the stage, you know. Mm-hmm. And we thought, hey, let's let's try and do something interesting. We started out, you know, shooting scene studies with the kids, and then. Over the summer break, I started uh, rereading uh, The Railway Children by E. Nesbitt, which is one of my favorite novels. The movie version by Lionel Jeffries in 1970 is one of my favorite films of all time, which I've probably watched more than any other film. So I started thinking over the summer, wouldn't it be amazing to be able to incorporate somehow my favorite novel into a feature film uh, that was either set in the immediate future or possibly in an alternative 1970s or 80s or 90s, because I think you tell by the style of the film, you can't really tell when it is, because the fashion, for example, uh, the clothes that the kids wear in the film is very nonspecific, mm-hmm. uh, and, more, and more what they've cobbled together in order to, you know, kind of, you know, get through their days more so than, you know, the kind of the usual way that teenagers are a slave to fashion. And in this film, it's all about... Um, and well, not just comfort, but what is practical in the kind of life that they're living now. So um, over the summer, I started writing this script and I said, wouldn't it be really interesting if I could use that novel, but have it that there's two girls. So again, in keeping with uh, the railway children, we had, you know, there were children. So it was it was central uh, to the story that this was going to be the story of children and their plight. And I thought, well, well what else would be interesting? Um, I had recently seen uh, The Road, which I thought was fantastic. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like absolutely fantastic. Uh, and I thought well, it would be very interesting to have that purely from the point of view of children. So I started thinking about how could we do that. And a friend of mine is a, a doctor. Uh, his name is Dr. John Fleetwood. And I'd spoken to him about things. And I said, is it possible that there are viruses that could affect only the adult central nervous system and not children so that the adults could be wiped out but the children survive and he said i could tell you five or six right now that if they if they took i don't want to freak people out but if if they if they went widespread that that's exactly what could happen so i said okay so there's a basis in scientific fact for what I wanted to write. So I thought, that's fine. If there's a Q&A and somebody says, yeah, but this is impossible, then I, I'd have Dr. John Fleetwood on speed dial, and I could say, <laughs> you need to enter the Q&A and tell these people that what, what I actually, you know, what I tried to develop here could, could actually possibly happen. So um, once I had that idea down, I started writing these characters, and... The first three characters I had were Cass, the leader of the, the of the, the you know the child cannibals, and then also the two sisters, Evie and Fran. Now I had previously been working with the kids before, and I knew who I wanted to cast: Catherine Rigglesworth as the older sister. But then in the intermediate class, there was this amazing girl called Emily Forster who I wanted to play Fran. So I had to move her up to the senior class in order to uh, have. <laughs> To have her develop this relationship with Catherine Rigglesworth so that they could become sisters. Every class they'd sit together, Catherine was able to calm her down and, and, and keep her arm around her shoulder and always have the sense that she was the older sister. So I was stunned by the level of talent of the children in the, in the intermediate and the senior class. 
So I ended up casting the entire film purely out of kids that were going to the Habemus Performing Arts School, mm. which was really exciting because normally, you know, you're doing a casting call and you have people coming from everywhere and they come in the audition. So to be able to have all the kids right there every Sunday for the two hours, knowing that um, I could just concentrate fully with, with this core group of kids and try and get the performances there. So what I started doing was writing characters to populate the story based on the real personalities of the kids who were in the class. So it meant that when it came to filming the movie, they wouldn't be so far outside their comfort zone that they thought they had to, how am I going to find this character? How am I going to be this person? They were essentially being themselves, but in the extraordinary setting of post-apocalyptic landscape. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and what better way to, you know, teach children, you know, these students about acting and, and uh, especially about getting out there and making a movie and being actually in the middle of production than, than doing it, you know, and actually putting them in a movie, you know, learning by experience. That's the, that's the best way to do it. And that was great, man. And what was exciting was that during the rehearsal process, and, um, you know, we would tell people that, you know, we rehearsed the film for a year before we shot the film. Well, what that actually meant was over the term time, it was actually about 60 hours of rehearsal for the entire you know, um, for the entire pre-production of the film. Oh. So they really, by the end of the 60th hour of the rehearsal, over the term time of the year, they were all able to stand up in a room together and just say the lines from beginning to end of the entire film uh, without any problem whatsoever. So when that happened, we knew we were able to set the date and we said, come July, whatever these dates were, um, in, um, in, in Dublin, in 2011 that we were going to uh, shoot the movie. We had the location. Most of the interiors of the film were, uh, were uh, shot in an old uh, convent building um, that had basically they were, they were having a new convent built, uh, a lot of these nuns, and they said that we could use their old Georgian building, which was really exciting because when you looked at the exterior of this building, it looked really small, but then you got inside and it was like the TARDIS and Doctor Who. It was absolutely labyrinthine. So, so any of the stuff where you see it shot in different houses and different places, 90% of it was all the one building, which was, which was fantastic for us. And then obviously, as you saw the exteriors, we filmed in the Dublin mountains. Some of those scenes were funny shooting on the, when the kids were walking on the roads because suddenly a van would appear up over <laughs> They start honking at them, you know, and the kids would wave back and stuff. So, so, but they were so professional. They immediately got back into character. Van Gogh back in character, you know. This is very solemn. God, we don't know where we're going. We're walking on this mountain road, and you know, they they completely nailed it. Always getting into character without any problems. Mm. Uh, so. wow. Man, you did so well with these these kids um, because I, I was again, you know, in a lot of these indie films. I mean, acting can be a big issue. And um, especially with young kids, of course, just being kids, they're not going to have much experience. And, um, you know, what you did, you know, again, you were brilliant in writing the, so many of the characters around the, the four real personalities of the kids. Um, and it just everything was sold to me, I, I think, very well. I believed everything, all the acting um, and especially the two leads that you talked about. I mean, these sisters were amazing. Um, they were just, they pulled off such a grand performance. They were believable. 
Um, I believe they were sisters. I believe they were relying on each other. I believe that the one had to grow into this this motherly role uh, toward the other. And I loved how that developed. And um, man, man, you just, uh, you really fostered some great talent here, man. Well, thank you very much. Actually, what's interesting as well, because again, during the process, I, I tend to turn up each week with new scenes written, you know, based on what we worked in the class the week before. So what I would do is, you know, I'm in my 40s, so being a lot older than them, there's obviously going to be a bit of a language barrier in that each new generation, as you know, they develop their own language. So what I did was um, I, would, uh, I would write something. We'd, we'd work it in the class. Sometimes they'd break into laughter and they'd go, you don't say that. We wouldn't say that. And I'd go, well, that's fine. You tell me, keeping the idea that is there, how would you word it? So essentially the kids would go, okay, well, change this word or change that word. And, and if you move this here and then, and then. So essentially they became really part of what they were going to be talking about. Because one thing I hate more than anything is that the filmmaker becomes the only voice in a film. What's really important to me is that if you're working with actors, that they're allowed to bring something to it themselves. Otherwise, it is that single voice. And I always think that if, if the kids understand who the character is, what the character is going through, then if they need to reword it somewhat, still fitting within the framework of where the scene needs to go, well then to me, it's just as viable as what I'm gonna write on the page and probably more so and more important because it helps them really get into character as well. Yeah. So that was exciting, having them having them that enthusiastic that they would go, oh, no, 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 I'd say this, or we just word it that way, or, or I'd come in it like this. And, and to me, I was learning, you know, just as much from them as they were learning from me the structure of a story. Hmm. Oh, I love it. I love it. Brilliant. Brilliant. That's, uh... and, and actually, none of those kids had ever made a film before. They'd never been on camera, which which I find really exciting. When I when I look back at the film, or I've given the film something to look at, and they remind me of something, and I revisit it again. I'm I'm always taken aback as well, going, Jesus, that you know that was their first go at it, you know. So that, that's exciting. Oh, holy cow. I could have sworn. I mean, again, these two leads, the ones that you know stuck out the most to me. I I could have sworn that they've been involved in in some other project before in some regard but th so this was this was their first their first film their very, their very first film actually it's funny because the young girl uh, emily forster she calls me uh, daddy filmmaker that's how she refers <laughs> all the time daddy filmmaker and in fact i literally just got a message from her about two minutes ago while we were chatting there on on facebook saying happy birthday daddy filmmaker see you soon oh. but um she, when she joined when she joined um habemus performing arts school immediately people thought, whoa, I mean, the, the strength of character in such a, like a small girl um, and her, her, yeah, her, her strength of personality. She sat, she sat in the corner of the library. We, we had been moved to the library in the building because they were doing some renovations and uh, quite a small room. And she sat on the floor eating a leaflet and she ate the entire leaflet and swallowed it during the class. And I thought, this is an interesting kid. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and, and again, when we were shooting with her, she'd go, well, do you think I'd do it this way? Or what if I tried it like that? And usually her ideas and her instincts were the right instincts, um, which was incredible for, for such a young girl and a girl with no experience in, in acting before. Mm -hmm. So, um, 
you know it's uh it's exciting when you meet that kind of talent which is quite rare and we're constant we've shot another movie um, uh, believe it or not, we have another movie fully shot and in post-production, and we gave her one of the uh, one of the key roles in it as well because too too good a talent to squander. Wow, wow, you're right. I, I can't wait to see what they go on to do. I mean, they again, this being their first project, they're they're just going to get better and better and better. And being that they they've started out fantastic, man, it's it's going to be so exciting to see where they go next and how they develop. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. And um, so, yeah, the, so the first thing that stuck out to me, of course, was the acting on this. But uh, other things were just really fantastic about Railway Children. Um, the cinematography, first of all, I, I thought was great. Um, you you do a lot, you know, um, even in a lot of the more establishing shots of uh, the, the landscape of Dublin, uh, just the beautiful, beautiful scenery that you have in Ireland there. Uh, it makes me want so much more to come visit that country sometime because it is just so gorgeous and you did really well to capture that beauty um on film as well as a lot of the character of um a lot of the locations that you were shooting at you know you're talking about the the interiors and uh the exteriors that you shot um you did those really really well uh, which is amazing because you were wearing a lot of hats uh during this film obviously being an indie film and we'll go into budget here in a second because that just blew me away when we talked about that earlier um, so you directed it, you're a DP, you edited this thing, you wrote it, you produced it, uh, probably on top of a lot of other things. Um, so how tricky was it to, um, be directing and, and kind of DPing at the same time? You know, you got to get the shot. You got to make sure you have a beautiful shot, which you did. But at the same time, you got to pay attention to what your actors are doing. You got to pay attention to blocking and things like that. How tricky was that to pull off? But you know, the, the funny thing was, and um, because my brother and I really started off as indie filmmakers, we, we had to wear all those hats all the time. I mean, my brother was producing stuff we were doing, and he was, and then he was doing the makeup on the actors. You know, so it was kind of like, why is the producer doing the makeup as well? This is because it can, and it cuts down on crew, and it's, it's, it's a lot less time consuming. We, we could just move from there. So what happened? So what happened was when it came to doing Railway Children, I knew that the only way we were going to be able to get it done is that I had more control over over, over the, the the various aspects of it. Now at the time, I couldn't get another cinematographer to work with me because it was too short notice when we were able to organize the shoot of the film. So I said, "Well, that's fine. I mean, I know exactly what I want to shoot. And I'll shoot it myself." Previously, I had shot everything else myself, so I knew that I could I could direct and be a cinematographer at the same time. Having already written it in a way that was out of the way, but it meant that I had an intimate understanding of all the text and where it needed to go and how I needed the kids to perform. So to me, that kind of felt automatic pilot. So that was fine. Um, I had a great uh, co-producer, a guy called Jason Shalou, who did a fantastic job. And his was mainly like corralling the kids and keeping them away from the set. We had. Uh, we had an, uh, one of our assistant producers, Nicole Harrison. We actually filmed uh, the main locations were on the grounds of the secondary school, which would, you know, in America would be high school. Um, uh, so she ended up, she was on very good, good uh, speaking terms with the, uh, the caretaker of the school. So not only was he letting us in and out every day, but he gave us one of the like, annex buildings to use as our makeup uh, spot. Oh wow! So we were able to keep everyone in the places they needed to be. So it meant that my job was really 
just directing and shooting. I had a great sound guy, Mark McLaughlin, fantastic. And so I just had to concentrate on, and in, to me, in a way, if I'm shooting it and directing it, it really just feels like I'm directing through a monitor and then looking over it and, you know, and checking that everything's going fine. But it also, because I'm an editor, it meant that I was also editing the scene as we were going along in my mm. mind. So I knew when I could stop and when we could move on to the next setup. So I found that that was, um, you know, that, that was interesting. But you'd mentioned as well about the different locations, and I, I, I appreciate your kind words. What some of them, I did, you remember the sequences where they're wandering around, you know, old houses, which were, you know, kind of, you know, broken windows and furniture strewn about. Mm -hmm. That A lot of that has really come out of the fact, um, I mean, you've probably heard about the Celtic Tiger in Ireland, the fact that we had a boom, and now things aren't so great. Right. A lot of people who had bought properties um, for, for huge mortgages ended up handing their houses back and kind of doing a runner. And we ended up finding properties that were literally just lying idle. And some of them, in fact, were side by side on the same street, gates broken down, doors wide open, and we would just go and we would film our sequence and then we'd leave. So it was a really strange situation in that when we would visit these places, it really felt like it was a post-apocalyptic landscape because you were in you were in what could be the outcome of that kind of thing. You were genuinely there, so it, that was strange. My brother found them because he's also a stills photographer and uh, he's looking for locations. And he said, "Jay, I found some amazing places that you should you should go and check out." So that again was very serendipitous for us, uh, for to to make it believable. Yeah. So you didn't have a lot of set construction to be doing. You didn't really have to build any of these things. You just kind of found the right places that fit what you were going for. And, and that was... We literally <laughs> didn't have to do any production design on the movie at all. Everything that you're looking at in that film was genuinely there as you see it. So in a way, to me, it's almost... I know that it's a dramatic story, but in a way there's a documentary element to it in that everything that's filmed in terms of location uh, wasn't touched by us. It was just as we found it. So that was interesting, you know? Yeah. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. And, you know, amongst this this beautiful scenery that I was talking about, um, you, you just have these these crazy abandoned, you know, ramshackle places that you found. So there, there's that that strange sort of dichotomy there, that juxtaposition of the beauty of your country, of the, the hillsides and the, the rolling fields and hills and everything, and then just kind of the, the decay of society. Yeah. Yeah. And you just, uh, you, you shot that beautifully and you, you, you juxtapose those ideas and, um, you know, and then we get into, you know, exploring human nature, you know, of course, with the children and everything. Once the adults are gone, once uh, structure and rules are gone, then what happens? Where do people gravitate towards? Where do children gravitate towards? And this, and I know a lot of people are saying this, and I'm sure you've talked about it a lot before, but it was, you know, giving me a, a lot of the same vibe as Lord of the Flies. You know, that, that's interesting because that has come up a lot. And it was, it was actually never the original intention. Because I was really, you know, interested in this idea of, uh, of using the book, The Railway Children, so the idea of using children then to tell the story came out of the love of that story. So when I so when I was shooting the film, I was thinking, 
things like, you know, McCarthy's The Road, and I was thinking of, of railway children, I was thinking of the kind of situation these children might be in and try and keep it as realistic as possible. And it was only after I finished the film that I started thinking, Jesus, you know, it, it, it's starting to remind me a bit of Lord of the Flies. And that, of course, had been, funnily enough, my very first day in, in high school, um, the, the, it was kind of a nerve-wracking day because a lot of the other children in the school had they they come up from the junior school up to the high school and I was starting in this class not knowing anybody so this there was a nice kid there and he said look you sit up front with me and I'll introduce you and everything will be fine the teacher came in the very first class um, was um, was English class and I've always loved English class and he came in wearing the black cape and everything you know and mm. it was quite scary and uh, he said right the very first thing we're going to be doing this year in first year is we're going to be reading the brilliant novel Lord of the Flies. So that very first day in high school that we opened the book and started from chapter one. So it's interesting, you know, coming full circle like that, that it was only when I finished the film that I started thinking of that. And when it went, when I sent it to people to look at that, the you know, early reviews started coming in saying, you know, like uh, the arts and entertainment magazine called it a modern doomsday version of Lord of the Flies, mm -hmm. which was really nice. I mean, that's a great, it's, it's a great thing to stick on your poster, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And and the fantastic thing is it doesn't seem to me as though you're trying to retell Lord of the Flies, like you're making your own version of it. Um, it does seem very original, but uh, to me, it, it shared the same themes and some, some uh, similar situations that uh, we saw in Lord of the Flies, but it does again. It doesn't seem to me like like just oh, he's just trying to retell Lord of the Flies just a little bit differently. Um, because first and foremost, I mean, I see it as an apocalyptic story um, with some a very interesting premise with the virus that uh, attacks and kills the adults only, leaving the kids to kind of figure things out and fend for themselves. Um, and then you know you just start getting into similar themes again, but you know, it doesn't seem like you're you're trying to kind of retell that story. And I think that's it, because the you know the fact of it being that I hadn't even considered it at the time, which I think is quite funny. Mm. You know that uh, it never Lord of the Flies never crossed my mind until after I'd finished the film. So it is. It's almost like I was watching it with fresh eyes and going, "Hey, I've just watched this movie called Railway Children, and it reminds me of Lord of the Flies." You know, mm. except that I had directed it, which was right. quite uh, quite a revelation for me. You know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it just, uh, like I said, blew me away. I, it, it was great. Um, it was very, it's a, a slowly paced film because, again, the girls are wandering around. They're trying yeah. to figure things out. They're trying to scavenge things and, and uh, just trying to find something. And uh, the pacing, you know, has been mentioned, I think, a few times. You know, have, do people generally think it's too slow? Do you look on it now and say, well, I wish I would have tightened some things up maybe maybe made it a little faster or are you happy with kind of this deliberate pace this thing where it's a little drawn out because to me i yeah. got it i i like the slow build the slow pace kind of the almost a hopelessness um about it in a way so well yes absolutely i've definitely had people saying that oh could have been paced up a bit you know could you had you know more action and and this going on but i thought you know, I said, really, what I want to do is show the mundanity of what their lives would be like. That, yeah, it's an extraordinary setting and that all the adults are gone. But at the same time, what are they going to talk about? They're still teenagers. 
they're still kind of getting into the same silly argumentative things and um, but you're constantly reminded then that there's no adults to corral them or shepherd them or or show them how you know how they should behave so you're always kind of wondering could this spiral into violence and because they're getting back more to instinct you know they're kind of baser instinct of uh you know, uh, you know, like Grace, the character of Grace, you know, just wanting Hellman to be with her all the time and, 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 and trying to control him, which, you know, again, is, is, would be quite a controversial relationship issue with people trying to control each other and not allowing them be who they need to be. So even in that kind of situation, you had the same kind of thing. So I want, but again, I'm such a fan of uh, 70s cinema, British and American and European. Um, I love the slow pace of those films where they allow you to, you know, to, to really kind of, you know, try and watch them and get with the story and see where it's going and, and move along, not at such a crazy breakneck speed. And I can understand that now that they're, you know, with big Hollywood movies, they're thinking, you know, you know, the rule almost being get in and out of a scene in two minutes, you know, that's what mm. you got to do. You got to keep moving forward. And I thought, well, these kids are in a life where they get up at whatever time they wake up, they try and find food, they try and find shelter. Their lives are mundane and they're punctuated every once in a while by something dramatic. So I wanted to be true to that all the time knowing that, you know, certain people were going to be critical of the slow pace of the film. But I, I really wanted to be true to their story and not try and be too exploitative. I know all film is exploitation because you're taking the audience on a journey and you, and you want to lead them in a certain direction. And some people would say, well, the, the exploitative parts of the film are the flashback sequences where you're reminding people of the horror that these kids went through, which I did, to be honest, think was really important because if it was constantly in the now or, or what this future is, then you never really would have been sure of, you know, of what they had come from and, and where their mind was at now, coming from what they come from. So we keep, we, we tend to have, if we ask somebody to vote for the scene of the movie, generally the one that, that comes out on top is the breakfast scene. Oh, <laughs> when yeah. people, now that, that actor, Darren, Darren Travers, is incredible. If you saw him in another role, he's playing an English gentleman or something, you go, that cannot be the same guy. He grew, <laughs> he grew the beard for the movie. He, he decided that his character was a farmer, and hence, when you see the exterior shot of the lonely farmhouse and that before we get in there, um, he decided, yes, I'm going to be a farmer. He dressed up as a farmer. He went, he drove out to farmer's markets and researched his role for about two or three months before we shot it just so he would have that backstory in his mind of, of who he was. So, so when it came to the scene, the girl who plays the daughter, Ellen Mullen, who plays Cass, she said, okay, so uh, what's going to happen in the scene? And I said, I'm not going to tell you. And she goes, what do you mean you're not going to tell me? I said, it's breakfast with mom and dad. Let's just see how it plays out. <laughs> all, all the time knowing, knowing that Darren had some crazy shit up his sleeves. And so we just went with them. We did the entire thing in a 25-minute take, uncut, and then we I did jump cuts when, when, we, when we cut it down. But um, at the end of it, the entire crew were just, their jaws were on the floor. And he's like, how was that for you, Jay? Is that all right? Yeah, happy with that? And we're like, 
and he's a big fella. He's like nearly six foot four, and you can see he's a big guy, you know. Mm-hmm. And so he was scaring the crap out of the cast and crew. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he, I think he really pulled it off, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that was really important. Um, you know, having the scenes like that, having these super, you know, crazy, bloody, brutal scenes that you show to kind of flash back to. Because you're exactly right. You gotta you gotta set the scene for why these kids are are kind of in the in the mental state that they are, and uh, what they really have come through, and and you you start really feeling for them a lot more um, that yeah. way. You know, especially you, you tell the story of their parents, and uh, I love the sequences at the at the beginning of the film um, where you're showing uh, their their mother and father and their deterioration. You know, and when their mother one of the last times that their mother was reading to them. You know, and yeah. that crazed kind of thing going on, and that just spooked me out. And 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 again, things with the father, and um, I, I think that was really, really important and very effective. You did those really well. The actors, all across the, you know, again, you know, even these these adult actors were uh, were really fantastic in in pulling off a lot of this. It sold it to me, man, and it was uh, it was really good. So so cheers to to um. Just how you put well, this actually, together. The adult actors had experience, and that to me was important. Mm. I thought if they're going to be playing characters, you know, that that, that were losing their minds, uh, then I needed to have people who could, uh, um, in in a short amount of time, they could really develop a character that that was going to be believable, but that was also going to disturb the kids who were playing the roles because. You know, even though the kids had all worked together and they understood that in the future part of the film, and it's, you know, it's, they're used to their surroundings now. But I wanted that as the parents are going crazy, that they're still unsure as to what's going on. So I wanted, I wanted that kind of fear to be there, kind of palpable. So I did a lot of work with the, with the adult actors. Actually, the girl, the, the woman who plays, um, who plays Evie and Fran's uh, mother is my sister-in-law. Oh wow! Yeah, and she had uh, she had done a lot of theatre work, and I started seeing the stuff she was doing and going, you know, and and various scene studies she had done. And I thought, Jesus, like she's really, she's really. I think this could really work as as the mother, and uh, you know, and she totally pulled it off. So I was I was thrilled that you know it wasn't a case of nepotism here. It was it was a case of. Mm. Oh, giving the right person the job and uh, you know I think she pulled it off ad- admirably actually one of the, the most chilling bits I think of her is when she's listening to the old gramophone and and she said to me so what's the tune and I said oh, I'm not going to tell you what the tune is because I went in in post-production she goes what do you mean I have to hum along with the tune I said no I want you to make up your own tune because I want it to be different to what's actually playing oh brilliant that's awesome she, she said, "That's a great idea. Oh my God, that's going to sound so crazy." And then, you know, and then it does. It's like, when you hear it, it's like, "Wait a minute, that's not the tune, is it?" <laughs> wow, I love how you surprise the actors, and you're, you know, the actors in a lot of these scenes don't necessarily know what's going to happen, and and necessarily yeah. how things are going to be and you just spring things on them and you get more of a, I think, a natural reaction there. And I love that you were comfortable enough to do that with these actors, and you just took a chance and uh, worked out really well. That's cool. I just think it's exciting because when when you're making a film, I don't think it, you know things have to be that structured. 
to me, I did master classes with Mike Lee, who'd be one of my favorite directors. And he, you know, with him, an entire movie just came out of a single idea. He would he would go. Now he was lucky in that obviously he had built up such a, a reputation as a, as a formidable director with with great end results. So he'd be able to go to his producer. Okay, the, the next movie I want to make is about a girl who lives in Manchester and moves to London. So when the producer would go to the funding bodies, they'd go. Oh, they go, okay, well, let's see the script. There isn't a script. It's Mike Lee. There's no script. We don't have a script until the funding's in place. And they're like, well, it's Mike Lee. They know he's going to come through. So having done master classes with them, you couldn't have learned from a, from a better guy on how to, how to make improvisation work. So to me, if you're on set with actors, you kind of go, okay, here's the script. Here's uh, where the scene begins and where it ends. If you want to change things around a bit because, you know, the, you know, the energy is going to be different when we're on set, do that just so long as we're getting from A to B in the scene, that it's traveling in that arc we needed to travel in in order to work. And to me, that's really exciting because you end up getting gold on camera then. You get these nuggets where you go, oh, my God, I just I hadn't even considered that. And uh, to me, you know, that that's why I consider even, you know, dramatic narrative form filmmaking in a way documentary if you do it in that way because you're literally capturing what's happening at that moment and what's coming out of the actor's mind because they're so in character and actually what it was quite funny it's slightly you know moving on for what we're talking about there but we have a movie planned that we're shooting the entire movie in 24 hours oh. and it's a feature and the idea is that it's basically the day in the life of the character with the filmmaker following them so, but it turns out quite nastily. <laughs> so, uh, so that's going to be fun. So it means that all the actors have to be really rehearsed, but rehearsed in a, an improvisational way because there'll be no dialogue written down. They just know who their character is. They know where they need to be at a certain time and they know how the film has to round up. So the film will look like a documentary, which to an audience should make it even more disturbing. Wow. That'll be interesting as well. A challenge. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting that uh, you, you have that kind of mindset about filmmaking. And, you know, you're talking about how you, you wear a lot of hats, but you kind of like it that way because, you know, you have more control over the shot, over how it's going to be edited, over things like that. But then again, so much of um, these kind of things are up in the air even while you're shooting. You know, you're leaving a lot up to the actors. A lot of uh, improv is going on. Um, yeah. So does that... Is that a tense situation for you where you're like, I'm going to edit this thing and I have a storyline, I know what's going on, but man, really anything could could happen during this scene. Um, so are, is there any anxiety going on there or are you just you know, comfortable enough with your, your cast and crew to know that, hey, whatever I get here, this is going to be, this is going to turn out well? Well, the thing about it is, you know, working that way and because everyone is so focused on what they're doing and because we can keep everyone else kind of corralled away, we know that we're working with a small group of people. So if we do a take and it's not quite there, we know we'll just do another one. So we'll, we'll get to a point where I've, I'm seeing it edited in my mind and I know, okay, we can stop now because I've got everything I need. So to be honest, I, the only time I feel anxiety 
is when the movie is fully complete and then I know I have to show it to people. Uh. But for any, yeah, but for any other stage of it, no. Because it's funny, we had two cast and crew screenings of Railway Children in Dublin's Lighthouse Cinema, which is a beautiful cinema in Dublin. And we had to have two screenings because so many people wanted to uh, see it in the cinema. Um, but I had to go out there and, you know, kind of with a microphone to this full auditorium and say, uh, kind of warn people that uh, because a lot of them are kids with them, oh. and I would say, I'd say, look, if this film was was certified, I I don't I, would it be PG thirteen? I don't know. And I said, even though it's not an ultra violent film, there's scenes of a disturbing nature mm-hmm. which younger children might find you know uh, problematic. So I warned them, and you know, after that scene with the mother choking to death on her blood on blood on the floor, and that her children are watching her, and the father's at the window banging at the window, mm-hmm. and there was, there was quite a few walkouts, and it was parents. <laughs> parents bringing their small children so i kind of understood that but what a friend of mine actually the guy who is the father banging at the window he'd seen the movie and uh, so but he lived just around the corner from the cinema so when the movie started i'd nip around to him for green tea and wait till the movie was over and then i'd be called they're all coming out they're all coming out <laughs> and then i'd go back and have to greet them which to me is horrific Having to meet people, knowing that they feel obliged to tell you what they thought of the film. But thankfully, people are running over and hugging us and going, oh my God, we can't believe what you did with that movie. And we just weren't expecting it to be what it was. You actually created a world that was so believable. And I was like taken aback because when you are um, in that edit suite and you're creating a film, in a way you lose sense of what it is because... You're so close to it. So you need people to tell you what it is after you've shown it to them because it, you, you become so close to it. And it was funny that the version of the film that, that you watched, I call the director's wife's cut, because, <laughs> which I'm telling you, if, I'd, if I release a special edition DVD, I'm going to call it that, the director's wife's cut, because, because she watched the movie and she went, ah, you know, I, you know, I thought it was great. I thought there were really powerful bits, but I think you need to change this, that, and the other. And I went, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not too big, you know, in myself that I'm going to go, no, you're wrong, you're wrong. I sat down with her. We went through the movie with a fine tooth comb. And she said, what if this? And what if you did that? And I agreed with every single thing she said. None of it was like, no, no, that's not what I'm trying to achieve. She immediately understood what I had forgotten in a way because I'd been so close to it. Mm. And she was able to guide me back on track just by being the fresh pair of eyes. Because when I'm editing a movie, she won't bother me. She goes, no, you just do it, do your cut, and you know, and then I'll honestly tell you what I think. And she's always my most brutal critic because she wants it to be the best it can be. Mm. And that's, uh, even though I might initially fight, like, oh God, you know, do I want to revisit this? I, I feel as though I finish with it. But once I relent and I give in to that, I realize that she's right. Mm. And she's a great guide for me in the same way that if she writes a, if she writes a screenplay, then I become her editor and, and I edit it for her and I hand it back. She goes, yeah, you were right there, you were right there. Because I think you, you know, no man or woman is an island. You need help. You need kind of guidance from other people to help you in that, you know, in the, the ultimate direction of, of finishing up on a project. Yeah, and that's really important, and it's it's nice to hear that uh, you have that kind of mindset where you're yeah. not you're not you know this movie yeah it's your baby but 
you you are not so into it and so married to what this is. This cut right here is is it, man. This is this is it. Um, yeah. You're not so much into it that you you're not up for making some changes, and especially from someone as honest and as close to you as your wife, that uh, will will give you that kind of feedback and, and suggestions. I mean, it helps that she is so talented. I mean, when I met her, she was she was she was an actress, and she was in a, a production of Les Liaisons Dangereuses, and and she was the only one getting good reviews. And I saw her on stage, and I thought, hmm, I like her. You know, I like <laughs> and we ended up. We actually got married like two years after I saw her on stage. and uh, But the thing was, I already knew how talented she was. She was such a good writer, an amazing, um, uh, uh, an amazing fine artist as well. And all the stuff she was doing was, you know, you know, the direction that I want to be moving in as well. So, so to have her as being the person who come in and tell me, I, I trust her completely in that you know, it's always the best intention that she just wants it to be the best it can be. So, so that way, there's no problem with me trusting her completely. You know. Yeah. So it is a nice. It is great to have that kind of relationship, no doubt. Yeah. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. And uh, you talked about you had a great sound man by your side because you know, again, in indie indie films, you know, a lot of times the audio's the audio suffers. And uh, it sticks out like a sore thumb. It really ruins the entire production and the entire feel if your audio is bad. Um, yeah. And uh, going right along with that, man, you had a great score. Um, it, it really, really, it was very grand. It, it, it sort of sold that whole um, just wide open world, apocalyptic feeling. And, and uh, so tell me a little bit about um, the score. You, of course, this was an original score for this film. So how did this come about? Well, that's really interesting because the composer, his name is Michael Richard Plowman, and he's one of the most in-demand composers in Hollywood and Europe. Um, he does a, he's, he's worked with Peter Jackson. He's done, he's done a lot of TV series. He's, he's oddly enough, he, he's scored a lot of Steven Seagal movies oh, wow. and a lot of a lot of the wrestlers movies that come out and um, you know he scored a lot of things you know steve austin films and what happened was i was putting together a production of a christmas carol a new feature film version which we're also premiering this year and um, and i wanted to do a really dark version in keeping with the um in keeping with the original uh, novella uh, that charles dickens wrote i didn't want to do another version of disney's idea of who ebenezer scrooge was mm -hmm. i wanted to character so I put this feelers out on the Irish film and television network and then suddenly this composer called Michael Richard Plowman got on to me and he says hey um, I'd be interested in scoring that film and I kind of went oh bugger like we, we don't have money to pay this professional composer for the film and I I told him then I said we've got no money he goes I never mentioned money he said I don't care he said I've never done um, a period feature and so for my own, you know, catalog even of stuff, I'd love to give it a go. Now, he hadn't seen any footage. So I started sending him scenes and he was going, ooh, I really like the look of this. And, you know, this is really interesting. So he started scoring it as scenes went on. And then um, Moya Brennan from Clonard, an amazing uh, Celtic band, they, they, she came on board and started adding vocals to it. And it started getting very exciting. So it, it, it worked out so well that Michael then said, you know what, I'd love to score lots of things you're doing. He said, I'm really enjoying working with you. What have you got next? And I said, well, I have this film, Railway Children. And I said, he said, look, with that film, just send me the completed film and I'll score it. 
So he watched it and he got back and he said, man, he said, that is such a bleak film. He said, I love it. And he scored the entire film in a week. Wow. The entire thing. And I was, I thought, oh my God, surely if I'm giving it to him this late, it's going to take months and months and we won't have the film finished for the screenings, you know, for the cast and crew. And literally a week later, he had the entire movie scored. And uh, and now he's, he's on to me saying, um, so what do you got next? And we have this really violent teen vampire movie called The Ecstasy of Isabel Mann. And uh, he's scoring that for us now as well. <laughs> oh, wow. Congratulations on all that. That's, uh, that's really great. I mean, it just so many great things kind of aligned here. I think you found... A lot of the right people and, you know, finding Michael Richard, you know, Plowman is just, uh, I think, just fantastic. And it's just kind of, I don't know, I hate to say luck, like you weren't, you know, you just kind of kind of happened into this guy and he really liked what you're doing and believed in it. And now he's kind of partnering up with you on a lot of these things. That's fantastic. And he kind of moves around the world. You know, I'd be talking to him one week. Oh, I've moved to the south of France now with my studio. And I'm like nice or i'm in london now or i'm in canada or i'm in la because of course as a composer he can move with his family wherever he wherever he wants to move to because it's all his studio and then he'll send the files out on dropbox or whatever you know and then you know they can say what changes they need so he doesn't have to be based anywhere so he gets to move around so literally you know when we skype i don't know what country he's going to be in you know the next time we've skype where are you today, Michael? Oh, I'm in the south of France. Yeah, but um, but it is. It's it's great to have a relationship like that because you you know you always think of things you know like Steven Spielberg had John Williams working in all of his films and you know John Barry would be connected to various uh, filmmakers and Ennio Morricone and Pino Donaggio and these amazing people. So you kind of think, well, you know, wouldn't it be great to be at this stage where you could partner up with somebody? Uh, who completely understood what it is that you wanted to achieve and then could enhance that musically. Because to me, the sound of a film is 60% of the impact of the visuals. Mm. And, and you, know, you know yourself, if you're watching a big Hollywood blockbuster and you turn the sound off, no matter how impressive the visuals are, it loses a massive impact when you turn the sound off. Yep. So to me, and I think a lot of filmmakers forget that, that sound is so important to cremate to create mood, tension, atmosphere, whatever whatever it is that you were trying to achieve. Uh, and that's, you know, that's hugely important. Right, right. And I, I, I like that you, you're, you're value, valuing this uh, relationship a lot, that, uh, you know, you know I, I, I sincerely hope that you guys do kind of get to know each other, you know, to a point where, you know, you're talking about all these greats that partnered up making films and, and uh, you know, I, I really hope that that can continue because his work was amazing. And I think his vision is, is right along with yours and he understands you and uh, gets what you're going for. So thank you. Yeah, so I am. I'm really hoping that that develops more and more and more. You know, we can uh, keep getting making bigger and better films all the time and, mm. kind of, you know, get into the big leagues will be lovely. You know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, man, you keep making pictures like this and and. Uh, you're going to be there eventually, I think, because, uh, again, you blew me away. So, you know, as far as people being able to see Railway Children, of course, you know, I'm hoping they're going to get excited by what I've had to say, because I think that it's definitely worth a watch. Uh, I think you're definitely just going to enjoy this and get into it. You, again, you used everything I love about horror. You know, I yeah, I can watch super fast, brutal movies and stuff, and that's all fine and good. But what I really, really like is the slow kind of things where I'm actually feeling like I'm almost living this, I'm experiencing this a little bit, and there's this creeping horror 
I have this dread going on. Um, and you really put that in there. Um, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And I think people who, who like horror in general are going to really like it. But um, like I said, right now you're kind of looking for distribution. Do you have any kind of uh, um, any idea, I guess, of uh, hopefully when you hope that people might be able to see this? Either um, are, are you doing some festivals or are you just wanting to get this out maybe on DVD for people to watch uh, here shortly? Well, what we're going to do is we're going to hit the festival circuit now because literally the film was only completed at the very end of July. So we've been sending it out to, to people, you know, whose, who's, um, you know, platforms that we like and respect and, and we love the work that they're doing. Hence, you know, the fact that we're talking today and I had approached you and said, would you like to take a look at the movie? Is because I love what you are doing as well. And I think that's really important that in, the, you know, especially in the horror community as well, that... It's it's very much it very much fan based. People people love horror and they love fresh horror and, they, and they're always looking for something new. And I'd spoken to a producer who said, "Yeah, there's a glut of horror movies out in the market, but it makes no difference that if you're providing something interesting and there is an there there is that audience there for it." So to me, that's exciting. So we're not sending it out to uh, you know many of the of the standard festivals that are you know that that are going to have rom coms and dramas and and a mixture of horror and that. We're specifically sending it to you know fantasy horror sci fi festivals, mm. and that's going to be the springboard because as we know that the you know the the potential distributors are attending these events you know looking for that. They're not looking for rom coms. They're not going to find them there. You know, so you you know that the guys in the door, you you was you know an equal chance with everybody else of picking up um, a decent distributor for your film. And to us, it's all about the film being seen. So the better distributor you have, the more people are going to see your movie, and then more opportunities arise from there. So at the moment, we're in talks with a couple of people, various different platforms. Some of them, you know, video on demand and. Uh, you know, actually, that that's a very interesting thing, the whole video on demand thing, because I read recently a statistic that last month, more people in the U.S. downloaded film content to watch, you know, on their iPad or on their Internet stream TV or even on their iPhone than the entire box office take of 2011 in the U.S. Amazing. So it shows where things are going. It shows where things are going, that because you know, handheld devices are of such a high standard now, people would be, you know, instead, oh, well, we go to the movies, no, we'll, we'll, we'll rent a movie online, we'll put it on our, on our big, you know, Mac or our 42-inch LED TV, and uh, we'll watch it at home, you know, and that's what's happening. You know, that obviously the huge tentpole movies that Hollywood released, the massive blockbusters, people are always going to want to see them in the movie theater because... That's such an incredible experience with your massive surround sound. And that becomes almost like a theatrical event in itself. Mm -hmm. And then those songs, people will then download it or they'll get it on VOD or they'll buy the DVD later on. And that's, that's you know, for sure. But they're actually saying now that it's looking more like that cinemas will go back to the way they were in the studio system where the, where the, where the studio owned a string of particular cinemas where they would release their own content because people will only want to go and see the massive blockbusters in the cinema and everything else they're going to want to download and they're going to want, want to watch on their portable devices. So it makes sense that uh, looking realistically at uh, digital distribution 
uh, is the way forward and especially for independent filmmakers. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I know my habits and the people that I hang out with and talk to uh, who are uh, mostly horror fans and, and film fans, um, that is what we're doing. I mean, we will go out to the theaters every once in a while, but honestly, I could, I could probably count on one hand how many times I've been out to the theaters in the past year even yeah. hasn't been that much and if you know right now i have i have my tablet i have my laptop i have a, a roku i don't know if you know what the roku is that uh basically streams content directly to your tv through you know netflix or amazon or vimeo and uh, makes it very easy for me to just go out and sit on my couch and rent you know have thousands and thousands of films to choose from um that's it and uh, so that's, I think, very smart of you to uh, be considering and being open to. That, uh... I, I think you have to. If you're going to be working in an industry where strides are constantly being made on the technical and distribution front, then you have to be open to engaging with all of these new possibilities or you're, you're putting yourself out of the market. You have to know that you can reach out to people. And, you know, what, you know, one good thing about digital distribution and online stuff is that it is democratizing filmmaking. And it means that if you have a really good movie and it gets word of mouth, it will get to its audience. Whereas before, when it was just 35 mil and it was 70 mil, that you just had to get your cinema distribution and then get your, your you know, would have been, you know, VHS back then and then DVD and then Blu-ray that you had to be able to go that route. But now you know you can actually reach out to your target audience uh, out there in the, the ether. You know, so it's, uh, it is exciting, I think. It's a challenge, but, but it's, it's exciting. Yeah, and I think you, know, you, you nailed the key to it right there is that it just has to be seen. You just got to get enough people to get their eyes on it because once they do, they're going to see it's a great film. They're going to tell their friends and their friends are going to go out and see it and they're going to tell more people um, because... You know, again, the especially the horror market right now is very saturated. There's a lot out there, but the yeah. vast majority of it is pretty terrible, to be honest. You know, there's there's a lot of bad stuff out there, and horror fans are looking constantly for the cream of the crop, for the really good gems that are out there. And um, so it's just getting it seen. That's got to be kind of your biggest kind of of a hump to get over. And if you can, if you can just get over that hump, get enough eyes on it. And, um, then that's when I think you can really make it. And, and I feel that not just the, uh, the horror film festivals for that, but bloggers, I think are, an, you know, an incredible mm -hmm. thing. Horror movie bloggers are some of the most passionate people that I've ever spoken to. Oh yeah. <laughs> they're so into their subject and they're so into promoting stuff that they enjoy that, you know, do, you know, you almost feel if you're a genre filmmaker that you're partnering up with bloggers because they're the ones who become your PR men. You know, they're actually putting the word out there. They're the ones who, if you've an Indiegogo campaign or something, or going, if they like what you're doing, they're sending it to all their followers. Support these guys, and this movie will get made, and you can be part of it. You know, mm. which is uh, which again is a very exciting um, prospect. A friend of mine. Uh, has just made $35,000 on his Indiegogo campaign for his film. Wow. And he put it on the flexible one, so they get all of that money so they can do all the post-production on their film. Mm. And that's that's really exciting that if, if people hook on the idea and they go, that's something I want to, that's something that I want to get involved in, uh, then, you know, then people start contributing. Yeah. So it's, it is, it, it means that your fans 
of your film and what you're doing end up becoming co-producers on it, you know? Right. And you can read it again over the internet to people in that way. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's fantastic how stuff like that is opening up. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, um, have you have you ever done any of the Kickstarter or Indiegogo things to raise funds for any of your films or are they more privately financed or? So far, everything we've done has been privately financed, mm. but we are for our vampire film, um, which was all shot on, uh, you know, the Canon cameras on the, the Canon 5D Mac II, which is just stunning. Beautiful. Even, yeah. You know, once you use those great lenses, I mean, absolutely wonderful. Um, but so we're raising, we're going to do an Indiegogo campaign for the uh, the final post-production on that. So uh, that's actually, I'm, I'm editing the trailer for Isabel Man at the moment. So once I have that ready, I'm going to do the campaign and send it out there. So again, I'm going to send it, you know, to the bloggers who are interested in what we're doing and see if see if they want to put it out to their, to their fans as well and if they want to come on board. Because as you know, the great thing is, it can start off at ten dollars and go right up to five thousand, and they get the various rewards based on what they want to contribute. So mm -hmm. it, it is exciting, you know, that they, they can go through that and go, God, if I if I give this bit, wow, look, and I get that, and I get all of the other stuff as well, you know. So it kind of becomes, oh, fifty dollars, what's that? That's fine, but look at everything, and my name's on the movie. So speaking directly to fans like that, you know, the potential is very good, and it means that movies of quality. Are, are being made instead of just somebody in the room cobbling something together on their iPhone. They're actually getting to have proper equipment, the proper post-production, so the movies that are then going out into the market are as good as anything out there because the fans are becoming part of that support network. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I, I found myself contributing, you know, over the past year or so as this crowdfunding has uh, really taken off, you know, especially through Kickstarter and Indiegogo. You know, I found myself, you know, throwing a few bucks here and a few bucks there. You know, I'll just kind of go through some different projects and find things. And man, that looks really cool. Yeah, okay. Yeah, if this gets made, man, I get a, you know, I get a download of this, and it, you know, my my name's going to be in the credits at the end. That's pretty cool. You know, so I would, yeah, I'll give them ten bucks and and, and you get uh, your poster and all yeah. sorts. Yeah, you never know where those films are going to go. Yeah, you know, they come from the next big. It could be the next Paranormal Activity or something, or the next Blair Witch. You just don't know. Oh yeah. Oh, and we, you know, we we have seen some pretty big things come out of these, and uh, there are some uh, pretty big names that have been. Yeah. I think didn't um, didn't Danielle Harris do something? I think through Kickstarter or something. She just made a movie here not long ago. And you know, um, it's quite funny. Danielle Harris is the guest of honor in Dublin this month at the the Irish Film Institute Weekend of Horrors. Oh wow. So, yeah, she's flying over for the for the weekend, so that'll be interesting. Oh, beautiful! I actually, it's a thing called Horathon, which I co-founded with a guy called Edward King, who's a film producer. I don't know whether you ever came across the Irish zombie film Dead Meat. I've but, seen uh, it. Yes. Yeah, by Conor McMahon, who's since gone on to do Stitches about Stitches Grindle, a really violent uh, clown movie, uh, which which is which is going to be released soon, actually. But Ed King produced Dead Meat. And he and I co-founded Horathon, which has now become, I think it's in, it's in its 15th year now of, uh, of showing, um, you know, great horror movies at the Irish Film Institute in Dublin. So, yeah, so Danielle Harris, is, uh, she's coming over for the weekend as the guest of honor. Wow. Oh, congratulations. I had no idea you were involved in that. That's really great. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, actually, it's funny. If you ever watch Dead Meat... If you're watching it again and you watch the extras, which I find really entertaining, where it, for most of the extras, 
they're arguing about what budget they have for you know for food and they're saying oh no you can't get yogurt we don't have money in the budget for yogurt you can get cheese which is very funny but in that they talk about the lead girl Marianne Araujo this uh, this Spanish actress but it was me that got her um, got her the role because they said oh we just can't find the lead girl for this and I said we're working with this amazing Spanish girl called Marianne Araujo why don't I send her in and she was the last girl through the doors for auditions and she got the lead oh wow <laughs> oh man that's I'm gonna have to go back and watch that again that's uh, that's been a few years uh, since it I put that in, and, uh, that came out about 2006, I think 2005. Yeah, yeah. So I have to go back. I I know I really really enjoyed it, and uh, of course, they're, they're, to me, it's a charm. Um, you know, I'm an American, and I I just really really like. Uh, again, I said, you know, I'd, I'd love to come visit Ireland, you know, because it's so beautiful and and uh, so much of that that whole area, you know, Ireland, Scotland, everything is just fantastic. And part of the charm for me is also the accents. You know, um, and right now, just hearing you talk, you could be talking about anything and I would just be loving it because I just love uh, I love your accent. Um, but, uh, you know, again, in uh, in Dead Meat, that was um, man, uh, you know, they, they there were some very thick accents in that. And oh, um, you needed subtitles, I'm sure. For some oh, of the, some of the characters. oh, I did. I did. I'm like, is this this is English, right? Are they still speaking English here? I, I think so. You know, what what else do they speak over there? I don't think they speak anything else, you know, and so it was it was really thick a lot of times, but I just love it. it it's very poetic sounding and it's, it rolls off the tongue very nicely. And it's just fun to listen to, even if I can't understand it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, I will have to put that in. But that's that's great. Definitely visit Ireland. Definitely. Oh, I'd love to someday, someday. Uh, but, um, well, man, this is fantastic. You know, we mentioned, you know, you, uh, the vampire movie, um, Isabel Man, that's in post right now. So, um, you know, I'll be, uh, you know, hopefully keeping up with uh, what's going on with that. And uh, so, well, and I'll definitely, I'll send you teasers. I'll send you the trailer when it's ready in the awesome. next few days. Awesome. Oh, I can't um, wait. I can't wait. I'll keep you up to speed on everything we're doing. I'd really appreciate that. Um, I'm going to have all your links up, of course, on the website in the in the show notes. Of course, uh, you know, October 11 Pictures has a YouTube channel and and all kinds of other things. I'll um, uh, you know get some information from you as far as links and and uh, where people can see some trailers. Especially, um, people can watch the trailer for Railway Children, correct? That's a public uh, public clip. So um, yeah, I think they'll get a really good feel of what they're going to be in for. When they see it, because it's uh, it's a lot of fun. But uh, oh man, Jason, it's been so much fun talking with you here today. Uh, I'm so glad that we could get together. Uh, means a lot, man. You too. I really appreciate the interview. Well, thank you. So hopefully, let's do this again soon, man. And uh, I hope you have a wonderful rest of your birthday here. Thank you very much. Every dead body that is not exterminated becomes one of them. It gets up and kills. The people it kills get up and kill. Electric chair. An occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Pierce. A man stood upon a railroad bridge in northern Alabama, looking down into the swift water 20 feet below. The man's hands were behind his back, the wrists bound with a cord. A rope closely encircled his neck. It was attached to a stout cross timber above his head, and the slack fell to the level of his knees. Some loose boards laid upon the ties supporting the rails of the railway 
supplied a footing for him and his executioners, two private soldiers of the Federal Army, directed by a sergeant who, in civil life, may have been a deputy sheriff. At a short remove upon the same temporary platform was an officer in the uniform of his rank, armed. He was a captain. A sentinel at each end of the bridge stood with his rifle in the position known as support, that is to say, vertical in front of the left shoulder, the hammer resting on the forearm, thrown straight across the chest, a formal and unnatural position, enforcing an erect carriage of the body. It did not appear to be the duty of these two men to know what was occurring at the center of the bridge. They merely blockaded the two ends of the foot planking that traversed it. Beyond one of the sentinels, nobody was in sight. The railroad ran straight away into a forest for a hundred yards, then, curving, was lost to view. Doubtless there was an outpost farther along. The other bank of the stream was open ground, a gentle slope topped with a stockade of vertical tree trunks, loopholed for rifles, with a single embrasure through which protruded the muzzle of a brass cannon commanding the bridge. Midway up the slope between the bridge and fort were the spectators, a single company of infantry in line at parade rest, the butts of their rifles on the ground, the barrels inclining slightly backward against the right shoulder, the hands crossed upon the stock. A lieutenant stood at the right of the line, the point of his sword upon the ground, his left hand resting upon his right. Excepting the group of four at the center of the bridge, not a man moved. The company faced the bridge, staring stonily, motionless. The sentinels, facing the banks of the stream, might have been statues to adorn the bridge. The captain stood with folded arms, silent, observing the work of his subordinates, but making no sign. Death is a dignitary, who, when he comes announced, is to be received with formal manifestations of respect, even by those most familiar with him. In the code of military etiquette, silence and fixity are forms of deference. The man who was engaged in being hanged was apparently about thirty-five years of age. He was a civilian, if one might judge from his habit, which was that of a planter. His features were good, a straight nose, firm mouth, broad forehead, from which his long, dark hair was combed straight back, falling behind his ears to the collar of his well-fitting frock coat. He wore a mustache and pointed beard, but no whiskers. His eyes were large and dark gray, and had a kindly expression which one would hardly have expected in one whose neck was in the hemp. Evidently, this was no vulgar assassin. The liberal military code makes provision for hanging many kinds of persons, and gentlemen are not excluded. The preparations being complete, the two private soldiers stepped aside, and each drew away the plank upon which he had been standing. The sergeant turned to the captain, saluted, and placed himself immediately behind that officer, who in turn moved apart one pace. These movements left the condemned man and the sergeant standing on the two ends of the same plank, which spanned three of the cross-ties of the bridge. The end upon which the civilian stood almost, but not quite, reached a fourth. This plank had been held in place by the weight of the captain. It was now held by that of the sergeant. At a signal from the former, the latter would step aside, the plank would tilt, and the condemned man go down between two ties. The arrangement commended itself to his judgment as simple and effective. His face had not been covered, nor his eyes bandaged. He looked a moment at his unsteadfast footing, then let his gaze wander to the swirling water of the stream racing madly beneath his feet. A piece of dancing driftwood caught his attention, and his eyes followed it down the current. How slowly it appeared to move! What a sluggish stream! He closed his eyes in order to fix his last thoughts upon his wife and children. The water, touched to gold by the early sun, the brooding mists under the banks at some distance down the stream, the fort, the soldiers, the piece of drift, 
all had distracted him. And now he became conscious of a new disturbance. Striking through the thought of his dear ones was sound which he could neither ignore nor understand, a sharp, distinct metallic percussion like the stroke of a blacksmith's hammer upon the anvil. It had the same ringing quality. He wondered what it was, and whether immeasurably distant or nearby. It seemed both. Its recurrence was regular, but as slow as the tolling of a death knell. He awaited each new stroke with impatience and, he knew not why, apprehension. The intervals of silence grew progressively longer. The delays became maddening. With their greater infrequency, the sounds increased in strength and sharpness. They hurt his ear like the trust of a knife. He feared he would shriek. What he heard was the ticking of his watch. He unclosed his eyes and saw again the water below him. If I could free my hands, he thought, I might throw off the noose and spring into the stream. By diving, I could evade the bullets and, swimming vigorously, reach the bank, take to the woods and get away home. My home, thank God, is as yet outside their lines. My wife and little ones are still beyond the invaders' farthest advance. As these thoughts, which have here to be set down in words, were flashed into the doomed man's brain rather than evolved from it, the captain nodded to the sergeant. The sergeant stepped aside. Peyton Farquhar was a well-to-do planter of an old and highly respected Alabama family. Being a slave owner, and like other slave owners, a politician, he was naturally an original secessionist and ardently devoted to the Southern cause. Circumstances of an imperious nature, which it is unnecessary to relate here, had prevented him from taking service with that gallant army which had fought the disastrous campaigns ending with the fall of Corinth, and he chafed under the inglorious restraint longing for the release of his energies, the larger life of the soldier, the opportunity for distinction. That opportunity, he felt, would come, as it comes to all in wartime. Meanwhile, he did what he could. No service was too humble for him to perform in the aid of the South, no adventure too perilous for him to undertake, if consistent with the character of a civilian who is at heart a soldier, and who in good faith, and without too much qualification, assented to at least a part of the frankly villainous dictum that all is fair in love and war. One evening, while Farquhar and his wife were sitting on a rustic bench near the entrance to his grounds, a gray-clad soldier rode up to the gate and asked for a drink of water. Mrs. Farquhar was only too happy to serve him with her own white hands. While she was fetching the water, her husband approached the dusty horseman and inquired eagerly for news from the front. "'The Yanks are repairing the railroads,' said the man, "'and are getting ready for another advance. "'They have reached the Owl Creek Bridge,' put it in order, and built a stockade on the north bank. The commandant has issued an order, which is posted everywhere, declaring that any civilian caught interfering with the railroad, its bridges, tunnels, or trains, will be summarily hanged. I saw the order. How far is it to the Owl Creek Bridge? Farquhar asked. About thirty miles. Is there no force on this side of the creek? Only a picket post half a mile out, on the railroad, and a single sentinel on this end of the bridge. Suppose a man, a civilian and student of hanging, should elude the picket post and perhaps get the better of the sentinel, said Farquhar, smiling. What could he accomplish? The soldier reflected. I was there a month ago, he replied. I observed that the flood of last winter had lodged a great quantity of driftwood against the wooden pier at this end of the bridge. It is now dry and would burn like tinder. The lady had now brought the water, which the soldier drank. He thanked her ceremoniously, bowed to her husband, and rode away. An hour later, after nightfall, he repassed the plantation, going northward in the direction from which he had come. He was a federal scout. As Peyton Farquhar fell straight downward through the bridge, he lost consciousness, 
and was as one already dead. From this state he was awakened, ages later it seemed to him, by the pain of a sharp pressure upon his throat, followed by a sense of suffocation. Keen, poignant agonies seemed to shoot from his neck downward through every fiber of his body and limbs. These pains appeared to flash along well-defined lines of ramification and to beat with an inconceivably rapid periosity. They seemed like streams of pulsating fire heating him to an intolerable temperature. As to his head, he was conscious of nothing but a feeling of fullness, of congestion. These sensations were unaccompanied by thought. The intellectual part of his nature was already effaced. He had power only to feel, and feeling was torment. He was conscious of motion, encompassed in a luminous cloud, of which he was now merely the fiery heart, without material substance, he swung through unthinkable arcs of oscillation, like a vast pendulum. Then all at once, with terrible suddenness, the light about him shot upward with the noise of a loud splash, a frightful roaring was in his ears, and all was cold and dark. The power of thought was restored, he knew that the rope had broken, and he had fallen into the stream. There was no additional strangulation, the noose about his neck was already suffocating him and kept the water from his lungs. To die of hanging at the bottom of a river, the idea seemed to him ludicrous. He opened his eyes in the darkness and saw above him a gleam of light, but now distant, how inaccessible. He was still sinking, for the light became fainter and fainter until it was a mere glimmer. Then it began to grow and brighten, and he knew that he was rising toward the surface, knew it with reluctance, for he was now very comfortable. To be hanged and drowned, he thought, that is not so bad, but I do not wish to be shot. No, I will not be shot. That is not fair. He was not conscious of an effort, but a sharp pain in his wrist apprised him that he was trying to free his hands. He gave the struggle his attention, as an idler might observe the feet of a juggler, without interest in the income. What splendid effort! What magnificent! What superhuman strength! Ah, that was a fine endeavor! Bravo! The cord fell away, his arms parted and floated upward, the hands dimly seen on each side in the glowing light. He watched them with new interest as first one and then the other pounced upon the noose at his neck. They tore it away and thrust it fiercely aside, its undulations resembling those of a water snake. Put it back! Put it back! He thought he shouted these words to his hands, for the undoing of the noose had been succeeded by the direst pang that he had yet experienced. His neck ached horribly. His brain was on fire. His heart, which had been fluttering faintly, gave a great leap, trying to force itself out of his mouth. His whole body was racked and wrenched with an insupportable anguish, but his disobedient hands gave no heed to the command. They beat the water vigorously with quick downward strokes, forcing him to the surface. He felt his head emerge, his eyes were blinded by the sunlight, his chest expanded convulsively, and with a supreme and crowning agony, his lungs engulfed a great draft of air, which instantly he expelled in a shriek. He was now in full possession of his physical senses. They were, indeed, preternaturally keen and alert. Something in the awful disturbance of his organic system had so exalted and refined them that they made record of things never before perceived. He felt the ripples upon his face and heard their separate sounds as they struck. He looked at the forest on the bank of the stream, saw the individual trees, the leaves, and the veining of each leaf. He saw the very insects upon them, the locusts, the brilliant-bodied flies, the gray spiders stretching their webs from twig to twig. He noted the prismatic colors and all the dewdrops upon a million blades of grass, the humming of the gnats that danced above the eddies of the stream, the beating of the dragonfly's wings, the strokes of the water spider's legs, like oars which had lifted their boat. All these made audible music. A fish slid along beneath his eyes, and he heard the rush of its body parting the water. He had come to the surface facing down in the stream, 
In a moment, the visible world seemed to wheel slowly round, himself the pivotal point, and he saw the bridge, the fort, the soldiers upon the bridge, the captain, the sergeant, the two privates, his executioners. They were in silhouette against the blue sky. They shouted and gesticulated, pointing at him. The captain had drawn his pistol, but did not fire. The others were unarmed. Their movements were grotesque and horrible, their forms gigantic. Suddenly he heard a sharp report and something struck the water smartly within a few inches of his head, spattering his face with spray. He heard a second report and saw one of the sentinels with his rifle at his shoulder, a light cloud of blue smoke rising from the muzzle. The man in the water saw the eye of the man on the bridge gazing into his own through the sights of the rifle. He observed that it was a gray eye, and remembered having read that gray eyes were keenest, and that all famous marksmen had them. Nevertheless, this one had missed. A counter-squirrel had caught Farquhar and turned him half round. He was again looking at the forest on the bank opposite the fort. The sound of a clear, high voice and a monotonous sing-song now rang out behind him, and came across the water with a distinctness that pierced and subdued all other sounds, even the beating of the ripples in his ears. Although no soldier, he had frequented camps to know the dread significance of that deliberate, drawling, aspired chant. The lieutenant on the shore was taking a part in the morning's work. How cold and pitilessly, with what an even calm intonation, presaging and enforcing tranquility in the men, with what accurately measured interval fell those cruel words. Company! Attention! Shoulder arms! Ready! Aim! Fire! Farquhar dived, dived as deeply as he could. The water roared in his ears like the voice of Niagara, yet he had heard the dull thunder of the volley and, rising again towards the surface, met shining bits of metal, singularly flattened, oscillating slowly downward. Some of them touched him on the face and hands, then fell away, continuing their descent. One lodged between his collar and neck. It was uncomfortably warm, and he snatched it out. As he rose to the surface, gasping for breath, he saw that he had been a long time underwater. He was perceptibly farther downstream, nearer to safety. The soldiers had almost finished reloading. The metal ramrods flashed all at once in the sunshine as they were drawn from the barrels, turned in the air, and thrust into their sockets. The two sentinels fired again, independently and ineffectually. The hunted man saw all this over his shoulder. He was now swimming vigorously with the current. His brain was as energetic as his arms and legs. He thought of the rapidity of lightning. The officer, he reasoned, will not make that martinet's error a second time. It is as easy to dodge a volley as a single shot. He has probably already given the command to fire at will. God help me, I cannot dodge them all. An appalling splash within two yards of him was followed by a loud rushing sound, diminuendo, which seemed to travel back through the air to the fort and died in an explosion which stirred the very river to its deeps. A rising sheet of water curved over him, fell down upon him, blinded him, strangled him. The cannon had taken a hand in the game. As he shook his head free from the commotion of the smitten water, he heard the deflective shot humming through the air ahead, and in an instant it was cracking and smashing the branches in the forest beyond. They will not do that again, he thought. The next time they will use a charge of grape. I must keep my eye upon the gun. The smoke will apprise me. The report arrives too late. It lags behind the missile. That is a good gun. Suddenly he felt himself whirled round and round, spinning like a top. The water, the banks, the forests, the now distant bridge, fort, and men, all were commingled and blurred. Objects were represented by their colors only, circular horizontal streaks of color. That was all he saw. He had been caught in a vortex and was being whirled on with a velocity of advance and gyration that made him giddy and sick. In a few moments he was flung upon the gravel at the foot of the left bank of the stream, the southern bank, and behind a projecting point which concealed him from his enemies. 
The sudden arrest of his motion, the abrasion of one of his hands on the gravel, restored him, and he wept with delight. He dug his fingers into the sand, threw it all over himself in handfuls, and audibly blessed it. It looked like diamonds, rubies, emeralds. He could think of nothing beautiful which it did not resemble. The trees upon the bank were giant garden plants. He noted a definite order in their arrangement, inhaled the fragrance of their blooms. A strange roseate light shone through the spaces among their trunks, and the wind made in their branches the music of Olean harps. He had not wished to perfect his escape. He was content to remain in that enchanting spot until retaken. A whiz and rattle of grapeshot among the branches high above his head roused him from his dream. The baffled cannoneer had fired him a random farewell. He sprang to his feet, rushed up the sloping bank, and plunged into the forest. All that day he traveled, laying his course by the rounding sun. The forest seemed interminable. Nowhere did he discover a break in it, not even a woodman's road. He had not known that he had lived in so wild a region. There was something uncanny in the revelation. By nightfall he was fatigued, footsore, famished. The thought of his wife and children urged him on. At last he found a road which led him in what he knew to be the right direction. It was as wide and straight as a city street, yet it seemed untraveled. No fields bordered it, no dwelling anywhere. Not so much as the barking of a dog suggested human habitation. The black bodies of the trees formed a straight wall on both sides, terminating on the horizon in a point like a diagram in a lesson in perspective. Overhead, as he looked up through this rift in the wood, shone great golden stars looking unfamiliar and grouped in strange constellations. He was sure they were arranged in some order which had a secret and malign significance. The wood on either side was full of singular noises, among which, once, twice, and again, he distinctly heard whispers in an unknown tongue. His neck was in pain, and lifting his hand to it, found it horribly swollen. He knew that it had a circle of black where the rope had bruised it. His eyes felt congested. He could no longer close them. His tongue was swollen with thirst. He relieved its fever by thrusting it forward from between his teeth into the cold air. How softly the turf had carpeted the untraveled avenue. He could no longer feel the roadway beneath his feet. Doubtless, despite his suffering, he had fallen asleep while walking. For now he sees another scene. Perhaps he has merely recovered from a delirium. He stands at the gate of his own home. All is as he had left it, and all bright and beautiful in the morning sunshine. He must have traveled the entire night. As he pushes open the gate and passes up the wide white walk, he sees a flutter of female garments. His wife, looking fresh and cool and sweet, steps down from the veranda to meet him. At the bottom of the steps, she stands waiting, with a smile of ineffable joy, an attitude of matchless grace and dignity. Ah, how beautiful she is. He springs forward with extended arms. As he is about to clasp her, he feels a stunning blow upon the back of his neck. A blinding white light blazes all about him with a sound like the shock of a cannon. Then all is darkness and silence. Peyton Farquhar was dead. His body, with a broken neck, swung gently from side to side beneath the timbers of the Owl Creek Bridge. The latest news. The situation here in New York City since the discovery of the first zombie is getting worse by the hour. There's chaos in the streets. The National Guard cannot control the situation. In every borough of the city, from Brooklyn to Manhattan, from Harlem to Queens, the zombies are taking over. The governor has declared a state of national emergency and has asked the president for immediate assistance. The zombies are everywhere. There seems to be no way to stop them. The city is at their mercy. According to the latest report from police headquarters, are gathering in
Okay, there we go. It's the end of another show. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to the wonderful Jason Figgis. Uh, I've just really enjoyed Railway Children. Can't wait for you guys to see it. Um, but uh, I really appreciate that Jason took his time to talk with me and uh, just uh, share some great things. Um, but I will put up that trailer in the show notes, so you should definitely check it out and see what you're in for. It's uh, really cool. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's about it. What else? Uh, you know, like I said, go and uh, listen to Gil and Roscoe's Bodacious Horror Podcast because it's a good time. Um, and uh, leave me some voicemail at uh, 206-337-5096. Uh, or you can go to the website, electrichairshow.com, and leave me um, some uh, feedback there, either uh, on the contact page. You know, you can send me an MP3 or a message or whatever whatever you want to do. Uh, you can email me, Corey at midnightcory.com, Facebook, Twitter, blah, 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 blah. said it all before. It's all on the website. Read the website. Huh. Yeah, but uh, I do appreciate that you're listening and uh, that people are contributing here. It's really, really cool. So that's about it. I will talk with you guys again next week. I don't think I ever can. Oh, boy. Good night.